Trick Avenue. When it comes down to creation, the big mysteries still exist, and it's good to be able to say this is a real mystery and not one that comes out of the fact that we've got the wrong model in the first place. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. We are going to be chatting with Wall Thornhill a little bit later about uh the electric universe theory seems like it's been a long time coming and we've got our upgrade winner nicky benefield he's going to join us from his new ipad and we'll talk to him yeah get into all sorts of fun stuff but first as always grab dark side dunlop buddy how's it going <laughs> good good i'm really good this is a great episode with wall and it's, and it's super fun to have Nikki here. Do you want to, do you want to talk to people about how Nikki arrived on her podcast? How he arrived? Yeah. He won the, the, uh, the whole motherfucking thing. Yeah. So we had this fundraiser for a new recording computer cause ours was really old and it was about to crash and a bunch of people donated. We really want to thank them. And, uh, Nikki was the winner. So he, he won like a, an iPad and a bunch of swag and then to pick, pick a guest and come on the show with us, which was an amazing choice because it's somebody we've had on our list for so long. And it finally, I think it lit a fire under our ass to get uh, Walt Thornhill from Electric Universe on the show. And it was, it was it's coming up and it was a pretty good, pretty good episode. Yeah, and Nikki's been around since the like first days. First, I think, well, you were around the, in the first year for sure. So it's good to see uh, a yeah, long time. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think uh, really I only had to go back like three episodes when I found you, you know, to catch up, you know, how you do with a podcast, you, you find it and then you go, well, let me see what they've been doing, you know? So, uh, I think, uh, Dennis McKenna was one of the first ones I listened to. I can't remember when that was, but, uh, he was one of the, he was one of the first ones. And then I went back and caught the other ones and yeah, I've been running ever since enjoyed it. You know, always enjoy your shows. We we're only getting like 40 downloads an episode back then. So <laughs> you're one of like 40 people that's been around that long. So it's good to see you take it home. And you're on the iPad now. Yes, sir. I am. It's nice too. And learning it little by little. I got a nine year old granddaughter. Uh, she got one through school this year. Uh, they have an exchange student. So uh, Sophie, my granddaughter, uh, they got her the iPad, and she uses it to translate Spanish, English, Spanish back and forth so she can communicate with the, with the girl in her class. And so yeah, she every time she comes over, she shows me something, tips and tricks on this that I can do. So, yeah, maybe I'll be up to speed one of these days. Just don't accidentally do the sex tapes thing like in the... 
the movie. The movie, yeah. Yeah, I feel like clouds. Actually, that might be. Hopefully, it's not still on Graham's cloud. Who knows what might pop up on that thing? Oh, well, well, you know. Yeah, be careful. There is uh, some audio audiobooks that we gave you there that are pretty. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah I, I noticed some of them are 18 plus. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate that. You know, that's, a, that's part of a well rounded life, you know. That's good. We had to assume. Been with my wife on. for 30 years. So, yeah, we do some reading, you know. <laughs> we had to assume whoever won would be. Uh, 18 and over because you have to be 18 or over to listen to the show there you go <laughs> or is it still 18 nowadays maybe nowadays it's only like uh, 14 14 before you can listen to cussing the, oh, the, do y'all get explicit rating every time do you, do you even pay any attention to that I, 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 I don't notice yeah we do we have a explicit rating on iTunes okay yeah Mostly because of Graham's potty mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you got? Well, we Nicky was just talking about his ketosis. Uh, he's you know because we, I've been trying. I've been playing around with ketosis too. And I was on Adam's podcast the other day talking about it as well. With uh, actually with our one of our new bloggers, Andrew Lamassini. So we're coming out on Adam's podcast probably in a, in a week or two or something. That's a friends to know podcast. I should probably put that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, and uh, just while we're talking about that, Andrew's been blogging for us for a few blogs now. They're great. So check out the blogs too. Yeah. And, uh, Nikki was talking about his trying to get on that ketosis diet a little bit. That's going pretty good. It, yeah, it, you know, there's there's some uh, uh, temptations, you know, every now and then. But but uh, uh, you know, years ago I did the Atkins, but I mean, I was a younger man then. It, you know, I could just cut out sodas and bread and drop 15 pounds. You know, that was <laughs> that was basically it. But now I'm I'm over 50 now. I'm 57. So uh, you know, for the last eight, ten years. I didn't think anything would work anymore, but I finally kind of learned uh, as a weightlifter, I was making sure I always kept plenty of protein in my body. I thought that's what I was supposed to do. But as I dropped the carbs, I also started to drop the protein a little bit. And now I've started to drop the weight a little bit too. So, yeah, and it's, you know, it's an individual thing. It's not a, you know, everybody wants to tell you on the internet that they've got the weird trick or tip or, you know, but you send them ninety nine ninety five and they send you the same thing everybody else will send you. So what do you replace you gotta, the protein with? Uh, fat. That's the, that's the, healthy you know, fat. that's the deal. Yeah. That's healthy what, like fat. Bacon? So, Bacon's uh, in there, well, yeah, I, uh, I've actually went to, uh, pork belly, which is, uh, uh, basically an unseasoned bacon, a raw, you know, it's a, like say a green, it's not been smoked or cured or anything. It's just fresh. Uh, you know, I got a local butcher and they cut local meat. And, uh, so the pork belly is, this, it's the same cut as bacon, but they just don't, they don't, it's not been cured. So, you, you know, I it? salt and pepper it to taste or what's that? Do you cook it? Yeah, fry it, fry it in a pan just like you would bacon. Cast iron skillet. You can, uh, you know, people use it in uh, uh, greens or beans or crock pot thing, you know, throw a big chunk in there and, uh, yeah, comes out just a big, juicy chunk of fat. (laughs) Yeah, I think I had that actually at a fancy restaurant one time and I wasn't expecting Mm -hmm. it. It was like wild boar 
fried wild yeah. boar pork belly or something. I was like, oh yeah, yeah fuck yeah. yeah. And I got it. It was just like all fat. <laughs> I was yeah. like so disappointed. I mean, yeah, I like you... fat. I'm a fat eater. Like I collect the fat from my family. Actually, yeah. Madison yeah, is I... starting to like it too. But like, I scrape all the fat on my plate, and I will chew that shit down. Oh yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm the same way. Yeah, the tails the tails of a ribeye. I've seen and my my wife's handed them to me many times and give me the strangest look when I wolf it down. You know, and, uh, that's the best part. You know, it's like the chicken just a skin. little bit of. Yeah, there you go. Skin of a chicken. Yeah, again. Well, that's the only fat you're going to find. They're saying that the the food industry's biggest blunder over the last few decades was that whole thing, right? Where fat was so bad. Like, like demonizing healthy fats over yeah. freaking refined sugar, you know? And now yeah. we're finding yeah. out, we're finding out in 20, in, you know, 2010, 2016 that getting all huscular. Sugar is like completely poisonous and it's all poison yeah. and then healthy fats are actually good. Yeah, I, yeah. I cannot process sugar at all anymore. I mean, my body just, you know, won't do it. It's I hard. Mean, as though. much as I love it. Yeah. It's hard because I crave the sugar and the carbs. Like it's oh yeah, at times yeah, that's what I said. That you know the times I've been out of ketosis probably in the last month or two is yeah, there's ice cream around or something. <laughs> Who's gonna turn that down? You know, Graham can never throw away a cookie. Uh, I, yeah, I did. Cookies. I did today. Yeah. No, you didn't. I oh, did. no, I didn't throw it away, but I didn't eat it. You ate the little crumb I put on your desk. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that's the biggest thing at work, you know, the donuts come out and stuff oh. and, and, you know, other people are, they'll say, well, I'm diabetic. And I said, yeah, but I'm trying to control it without medication. You know, they'll take another shot and eat a donut, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's just, I got to say no, just, I got to say no when there's right. that stuff around. It happened just this morning. Yeah. Was that this morning? Yesterday yeah, morning. It was this morning. Yeah. Grab it. We had a cookie and Graham told me I had to take it because he couldn't throw it away. So I broke off a little crumb and put it on his desk. And then yeah. when nobody was looking, he snuck and ate it. Uh, you don't waste food either. You know, that's the way I was raised. So <laughs> I had to, I yeah, had you can't, can't just chunk it. Yeah. I had, Give I, it away is a good thing. Speaking about ketones, I had this little dream the other night. And I was with, well, they turned into one. Well, I think it did. Well, we, you're not going to like it, but. I'm a rambling grand with synchronicities all over the web. And Aaron is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. I do want to say to Ulysses that, yeah. uh, yes, I am harsher on Graham. And if you don't watch it, I'll be harsher on you, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're pretty much harsher on everybody. But this is one of those synchronicities that's, that's just more intense as it happens. So anyways, I had this dream that I was testing for ketones. And like, I'm not on a real strict ketosis diet or anything like that. But I had this dream that I was testing for it through this, uh, this like, like almost like a breathalyzer. And like, I don't know how you test for ketones, but I was blowing this breathalyzer. And I was a five. And I don't know, I was like asking them, what am I supposed to be? And they're is saying like a breathalyzer. It's like a yeah, like you blow in it to test your ketones, and then in the dream, I was watching like... a video from the eighties or the nineties where people were doing it, and they were like nine and eight, and they were comparing people that were eating this weird diet, right, in the eighties and nineties, and then we get back to like the current time where I'm blowing a five, and 
they're saying it was supposed to be two or three, but that day I had had like a bunch yeah. of sweets. Oh, and so I was like, based. I was like, you know what? Actually, it's not bad. I had five, but I had all this shit today. <laughs> so it's okay. And then I'm test texting Mike. I'm asking Mike. All right, negative uh, Mike. Yep. Oh, Sasquatch fell off the mic. RH negative Mike, my my longevity consultant. Coach. My longevity coach. Yeah. I'm like uh, looking for collagen anyways. He just says he he just found a company that's going to sell exog exog oh my god. Exogenous ketones in Canada. But he's saying uh, it looks like it'll be network marketing though. Anyways, I said, well, there you go. There's your new job and all that. And I just finished this bowl of macaroni. And uh, <laughs> I said to him, I said, uh, funny, I just had a dream. I was blowing into a device to measure ketones. <laughs> I said, I blew five. And he says, you can eat a bowl of macaroni and 15 minutes later be in ketosis. And I just finished a bowl of macaroni. I said, I said, I just had a bowl of macaroni. And he's, you know, synchronicities abound. and. We have another texting synchro. Love and light. Yeah. He's like, seriously, you dreamed of ketones? I'm like, yep. I thought you actually did the ketone thing. No. It was all a dream. It was all a dream. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> so anyways, that's that. I didn't, I wasn't even going to talk about it, but since, since Nikki brought up the ketosis diet, I figured... I might as well. It was pretty weird. Where do we get the ketonium blow on? The ketonium blower? I don't know if that's even a thing. It was just a, I dropped it up. <laughs> uh, the, the cheapest way to check it is actually a urine strip. So <laughs> you don't want to blow into them. You just pee on them. 15 you... seconds later, it'll tell you how deep in ketosis you are. Really? Yeah, there's colors on the back of us. Uh, what else is Well, uh there's something else I've seen that you know you you've pee on it before. I think blood sugar actually you can test test that way. You know, blood's a lot better, but uh, there's a couple of different kind of strips you can pee on and it can change colors and show you what's going on. It's like a ketonus pregnancy test. I uh, yeah, one of yeah, those. I'm sure. And you want it to be in more ketonus the better. That's when you're in like your fucking primal yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the sticks I've got. The, the darker purple they are, the, the deeper in ketosis you are. But as far as your breath goes, uh, your friends will know that because if you're in deep ketosis, you've got pretty bad breath, uh, usually, because uh, you're, wow. you're burning your own fat. And, and I think that's, yeah, even back, you know, in the 70s when Atkins, when Atkins diet was so popular and all the rage and stuff, uh, uh, yeah, People would go on it for a few days, and and yeah, the breath would get bad. That would be one of the side effects of it. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you might want to keep a mint in your pocket. So <laughs> sugar free, of course. So there's also other th theories that it's not necessarily a good thing for everybody, right? And it's not always good to be in ketosis, but it is a way to live. Like they're they're finding out that carbs yeah. aren't as important as they thought they were, right? Yeah, there's there's no essential carb. Yeah, that's that's basic, you know, basic fact. Uh, you can, I mean, now you you're going to get headachey and stuff like that, you know, and I will, and, and I try to get a few carbs from vegetables, you know, like right now I'm looking, I can see avocados, uh, hemp milk, the pork belly I was talking about, and some Brussels sprouts. So that's basically what I've been grazing on tonight. So. And what has uh, I could fucking hammer down on some Brussels sprouts. Yeah, I, they're a good side to me. I, I love them. Contrary to what the bushes may say, 
Have you ever thought about getting your blood work done and sent to those those labs that sort of tell what kind of, you know, how your exercise works for you and what kind of, uh, how you process some of the the foods and uh, supplements and all that? Yeah, I would love, I'd love to, you know, uh, doctors, the standard, you know, my healthcare ph- physician or whatever is the only one I've really had blood work done through and, you know, the, because of insurance regulations, they won't do anything but the standard tests and stuff. And it's just like my testosterone at one time. See, I, I'm more of a, my endocrine system's just slow. I'm, I got low thyroid, lo, uh, low insulin production, low testosterone, you know, which really surprising because I, I was lifting weights at the time and lifting really heavy and three, four times a week, you know, but yeah, and that's another thing ketosis can do to you, and I've noticed it. I, I've not had my blood checked, but, you know, just from my body and my reaction, your testosterone goes up uh, if you stay ketogenic around. You know, you don't have to You don't have to be totally strict, but uh, maybe a, a carb meal once, twice a week, you know. Hmm. What, do you take branched chain amino acids or anything like that? Or uh, I, I do. I do on days I work out. Like my workouts now, more like a couple times a week of weightlifting. Uh, I do a lot of walking. Uh, Burnheim Forest is close by. It's uh, lots of nice hiking trails. If uh, you can avoid the ticks this time of year, it's really a. You know, I like a walk. Like a. You know, you, y'all, I've heard y'all talk about walking meditations and. You know, I use a little music or or uh, listen to listen to a podcast and stuff and get out in the woods for a while. And you ever do it? I, yeah, I usually feet? take branch chains. I can't can't hardly take yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I have went minimal. You know, I've, my shoe has a lot less. Uh, I used to wear the old sturdy hiking shoe, but yeah, I I went and looked at the five toe foot shoe you know yeah i and got those I said, guys uh, do you yeah. <laughs> i i was not going to spend that amount of time to put one of them on I yeah sat it's, there it's and, okay yeah. that you don't have a guy you keep getting the toe in the wrong <laughs> hole it's pretty frustrating yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Toe in the yeah. Wrong hole. yeah. <laughs> i know it's always know dangerous and, and a couple <laughs> of my toes have been broken before and they're kind of numb so they feel weird in the shoe crooked yeah 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 i i went out i had just a a minimal shoe and i stubbed a toe uh, about two months ago and so i actually went out and bought a uh it's still a kind of a flat sole but more of a more of a toe uh cap over it you know so yeah no don't need to hurt that toe anymore and let it heal up yeah are they hard to fit over your web toes (laughs) <laughs> so why is your one toe all weird looking there because i got i heard it in hockey there yeah it's, it's been damaged again when you shave your legs damaged <clears throat> yeah. it damaged so so nikki that they, there's these shoes i heard about that are like uh earthing shoes like they're like hiking shoes but they're they've got a thin sole and copper copper wires through them or something like that okay yeah i heard this uh you'd like this guy's podcast called ben ben greenfield fitness he's like up on the latest Okay. I know his name. I've, I've, I think I've read some of his writings, some of his articles and stuff, but I've never listened to that podcast. Yeah. Oh man. Like he is full of amazing science and information. He's not, he's not closed minded at all. Like he'll talk about sound and how it's healing and like 
restructuring water through pouring it over crystals and sunlight, like the science behind all that stuff as well, and not just be dogmatic over, you know, like pharmaceutical yeah. type science. But he talks about supplements all the time and, and meditation and all kinds of stuff. Like, it's really, really cool. Yeah, well, that's me. About the only thing I'm anti now is pharmaceuticals. I've had such a bad, you know, they. I went through the standard thing when I first found out that I was insulin resistant. You know, they 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 actually diagnosed it as type two diabetes. But uh, uh, and you know, once we got a little deeper into it, it's it was just I wasn't producing enough insulin to take care of the blood sugar. But yeah, I went down the route of metformin, and which you know. A lot of people say metformin is a good drug. It's been around since the 20s and, you know, and stuff. And, and actually, Life Extension uh, recommends everybody that can get it take 1,000 milligrams a day. But after about uh, three months of taking it, it, it did stabilize my blood sugar, but also couldn't get over five or six miles away from my toilet, you know. Because <laughs> when I had to go, I had to go, you know. So... I had to, I had to figure out something else. Hmm. And, and that's going better for you now. Yeah. I, I'm, I know pharmaceuticals at all. Uh, I take supplements, you know, I, I, I've tried, you know, fish oil is a big one. Yeah. Uh, stay with it. And like you said, the branch chains, uh, ATP is also, uh, it's, it just feeds your muscles. Um, uh, uh, and when you're working out or, or, you know, running, walking, whatever, it's kind of a, it, it's almost like energy. And I use B12, uh, sublingual, drop it under your tongue. That's a, that's a big burst of energy. Hmm. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's, you know, pharmaceuticals is a last resort to me. And you were talking about the ones that should be ketogenic. Anybody that's had cancer or has cancer more and more now there is doctors that you know some tumors don't respond but a lot of tumors do and you know so you can basically starve them to death because they because they feed on glucose you know so if you're eating sugar you're all you're doing is speeding your cancer up so yeah, also chronic, you know. like chronic pain and stuff like that as well, probably, right? I mean, it's it's also, you're also sort of getting rid of a lot of other things like gluten probably and other other problem items. Yeah, yeah uh, the, the gluten thing, uh, I used to take uh, Claritin, you know, allergy medicines all the time. You know, you just thought it was like here, the Ohio Valley where I live. I, everybody says, you know, it's just the Ohio Valley. It's allergy country, you know. But uh, stay away from gluten. I had a gluten exposure about two weeks ago. Two days later, my eyes were running, nose running, you know, that kind of stuff. And it took me about a week to get over it, you know. So I take yeah, allergy pills actually, every day. Well, uh, that, I mean, you know, that's an easy experiment. You know, 30 days, that's a that's a good thing. Like, uh, I don't know if y'all have heard of Rob Wolf. He's, he wrote a book about uh, the paleo diet, you know. Uh, but... Uh, that's what, you know, that's what he'll tell you 30 days, you know, take a, take 30 days, see if it changes. If it don't, then, you know, well, that's probably not going, you know, it's not the right road to go down. So, so, I so mean, as far know, as like, are you talking about ketosis or just gluten free? Uh, just trying to get off of gluten. would be another big one. That's a lot of that. That's the allergy, 
uh, portion of it for me was uh, getting away from grains. I, you know, I hardly ever eat. If I eat any bread anymore, it's like Ezekiel bread, sprouted, sprouted bread. I wonder so, if that's uh, my problem. Yeah, maybe you should try that. Because then, yeah, I mean, uh, you if know. that's how your, if that's what your symptoms are, I mean, it probably mm-hmm. fucking up all sorts of other shit along the way. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah it's, that's a good point. I've got a my my daughter and and her son are both uh, uh, sneeze all the time, and I've you know your family sometimes the hardest one to talk to. So, but I've you know I've I've asked them would they like to try it and. Uh, she works in a restaurant, and she said, "Well, that's the, probably the last thing I could do is get, get away from bread." And I said, "Well, yeah, but you know, try it for thirty days, see what happens." But, you know. I wonder if it has to be away from bread completely, or if you can do. Uh, I watched a special the other day on how if you can get back to the real original, like sourdough, three ingredient breads. <laughs> Yeah, you could. Uh, a lot of people, even with gluten problems, are able to eat those with no problems. Yeah, uh, see the 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 sprouted breads, Ezekiel bread is is a brand name. Uh, you know, it, it it takes its name from a verse in Ezekiel in the Bible where they talk about eating the grain. But yeah, they they sprout the grain and that opens the husk and that's where your gluten's at. So basically, you're getting the seed out of the middle of the wheat without getting that whole part. You know, and uh, supposedly that's supposed to be better for you. But, you know, I just don't eat a whole lot of any of that because I, I really, after a while, I don't miss it. But you do miss it at times. You know, if you go into a restaurant and they bring out that hot bread, <laughs> you know. It's crazy it's that we want like something that's so bad for us. Like, why, yeah. oh, why do yeah. we evolve to crave the stuff that really might be bad yeah. for your health? Well, you know, it, it's just like uh, fruit. You know, when we were hunter gatherers or whatever, we we gathered that as uh, two weeks out of the year when it was ripe, and so we did. We gorged on it, but then all winter long we put up to preserve the meat we killed and stuff like that, and that's what we ate all winter. And you only had the you only had the fruit when it was in season. Now we need it three sixty five. So, is that part of what the paleo is as well as seasonal eating? Uh yes, it can be. It, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, they eat some fruits, you know, they're, they, uh, uh, citrus fruits, I think is one, one they don't like that much. Uh, but like seasonal apples, like green, uh, and, uh, my son, he goes by just, a uh, if it's green, eat it is what he says, you know, yeah, yeah. like if it's white, don't eat it. You know, that's, uh, that's couple of simplified oversimplified really but you know like i said you have to you have to figure it out how your body responds to it because you, you won't respond the same way i do because we got different factors going on well, it never occurred to me of cutting out fruit and things like that yeah because fruit mm-hmm. has a lot of sugars right it really is very sugar yeah yeah and it's a it's fructose which is uh it has to make an extra trip through your liver and that kind of a little harder on your system but like berries you know there are certain fruits that they're paleo approved you know berries is one of them and then like granny smith apples green green skinned apples is another one that that they say you know in moderation um you know some people eat bananas some people say bananas are the devil's work so you know you can read about what you want to in a lot of places i eat a lot of bananas 
Yeah, they, they are, you know, just basically they're high. In, they're one of the things that's kind of high in calories. So, uh, you know, but of course, so so is coconut. And right now, coconut is uh, basically a wonder drug, not even a food anymore. It just it's good for everything. So does sugar you know? still grow on the, or does cancer grow on the fructose or only on glucose? Uh, that's that's a little deeper than I've gotten. I don't. I I think if they did determine that your cancer's you know feeding on glucose they try to get you off of all sugars all sugars so yeah you're very restrictive high fat diet you know like i think i've I've read as much as like 90 percent fat and then just some uh like green vegetables you know you know salad greens and uh, vegetables go along with that meat and veggies yeah yeah, yeah, just a little, just adequate protein, and you know the bodybuilding, you know they want to gram or eat up to two grams a pound, you know, of body weight or kill or uh, I think it was point eight per kilogram for you guys or something like that. Uh, but you know that wow. that's that's a lot of protein, protein like you know. But that's that's people that you know you you've seen them market insure and all these uh drinks to older folks you know to get the protein into the because they're the, the muscle wasting is what they're worried about as they get older but actually your body you know does a pretty good job of of using what you give it to uh, to do what it needs to do you know this if you keep your muscles active they won't atrophy you know that's a big thing with old people. You older you get, the less active you are. In some cases, you know you still see the ninety-year-olds that's out doing marathons and stuff too. Wow. That'll be Graham. <laughs> that's not a, not a bad that well. I don't know about. I hadn't run twenty-six miles my entire life. I don't think. But, uh, I think the I real have bad. to have something. What's that? I think the real bad sugar is the, like the high fructose corn syrup now. Like I think when when the pop uh, when the pop like the real problem happened was when that got started getting added to all the food and then the pop. Right, yeah. that, uh, I I agree totally. You know, I was born in 1959, so uh, you start looking at about you were talking about that. That's when they changed over to this. Uh, food pyramid we have now you know and the the fruits and vegetables on the bottom you know take eight ten twelve servings a day and that you know so you start looking at from that time you know the time i was born each generation you know of of y'all and and uh, we got away from breastfeeding kids. We're, we're feeding them on soy or, you know, whatever formula that they've come up with now. And so our immune systems are compromised, too, from that. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a cascade of things. We've it's a 50, 60 year experiment here and we're all products of it. Exactly. It's not went, it's not went that well. That includes no, no. all the chemicals and the environment too. And all the uh, steroids yeah, and go. additives. I mean, it's just been, yeah. my kids yeah. are all breastfed. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good thing. See, that's what I'm finding out more and more now is my health problems stem more from my gut bacteria. My gut flow. You're talking about taking a test. That's the, test the next test that i need to take is to you know try to determine what kind of uh gut bacteria i have because i don't digest that well 
Do you do the probiotics or the kombuchas and the live uh, stuff at all? I, I use I use probiotics, and uh, uh, it's hard to find a kombucha. I, I've not figured out how to make it myself. They say that you can do it, but it's letting some sit around and it's a disgusting yeah, process. Yeah, and if you buy a marketed brand, they've usually got sugar in them. It's you called know, like a scabby or something. That fucking yeah. thing that lives. Yeah, in there. it it's forms fucking, on top. Just right? to call it's the mother bacteria. Yeah, yeah, the mother. Yeah. You don't have to call it a skate. It's, it's the mother. Oh, no, it's the mother. So I, the one I have is a ginger ale kombucha from GTs, I think it is. And it's it's got like maybe eight grams of sugar in the whole thing. So there's a bit, mm-hmm. but it's not much. As far right. as it's a yeah. pretty big, it's a pretty big bottle for eight oh. grams of sugar. That's not too bad. Yeah. That's, a pretty is good that, that's not per serving, is it? That's total. That's oh, fucking fuck. per Maybe serving. Per serving fucking yeah, you got they'll they'll Probably catch you per cup. <laughs> they'll catch you with that per serving. That's a boy. That's a trick. That's yeah. a marketing trick, big I, time. Yeah, I better watch that. Uh, uh, the spray on cup. butter. Remember the? I can't believe it's not butter or whatever. You can just spray it, yeah, you know, and yeah. stuff. And it said it was zero calorie. But if if it's under 0. 0.5, they can call it zero calorie. So what they did was they just turned their uh, servings per bottle up to like 50. <laughs> so, you know, that was like one drop of that squirt was zero calorie, but a full squirt had about 10 calories in it. So, you know, it's like because it was because they made so many servings per uh, bottle, you know. Yeah, That's one of the you. ways corporate corporate America eats you up. Yeah. I just listened to this audiobook. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast a lot about it's called Salt, Sugar and Fat. Actually we should get the author on, Michael something. And uh it was just mind blowing the way that the uh, the science behind creating a bliss point for the food industry. So it was about like craft and general mills and all these, all the money they put into just scientifically designing the food to, so you can eat more and more and more of it. And it has this mouth feel and a bliss point, like by yeah. adding and subtracting salt, sugar and fat. And then the marketing that went into it and, Oh, it's just disgusting what they're, you know, the, just yeah. the battle between all these big companies just to, to fill your house with like garbage food. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know Darren said salt, salt, but uh, uh, we went to the pink Himalayan salt. It's, you oh. know, it's more expensive and stuff, I, but even if it's not better for me, it's pretty cool to be eating salt from the Himalayas. You oh, know? and I'm telling Darren, this Ben Greenfield guy goes all over it. It is so much better for you than the refined salt. It's unbelievable. It's full of like 70 minerals and nutrients in my little pink salt that I get. So yeah, if you, you can, can have a it. bath in it, put it on your food. You can even use it to to change the structure of your water. If you pour your water over it after it's been in the sun, your water will change. I'm serious. I'm not saying it's the same as refined salt. You weren't. You were saying saying table salt is the same as your Himalayan fucking pink salt. (laughs) And then I started hearing all the science behind it to vindicate me. What about sea salt? Yeah, it's better too, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any of that you see that's got some little specks of something else in it, you don't, you know, you <laughs> don't really know what it is. Salt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh, are are either one of y'all very, are y'all salty sweaters? Do you you know like you turn you you cap white when you're playing golf or something like that when yeah. you sweat? Well, you you need to not worry about the sodium restrictions that they put on your diet because you're uh, my dad as he gotten older. 
he became sodium deficient because and you know that's what i remember him when we when i was growing up we'd be out in the field working and his whole green work shirt would just be white where he was sweating you know and uh yeah, he was he was in the hospital having a knee replacement, and they wouldn't let him go until they got his sodium up, and it took about four days to do it. I he was salting salt. everything. Yeah, you sweat yeah. white. Oh, Are you sweating white? Like, do you have salt? Lift up your arm. No, you're not sweating right now. I'm fucking sweating like a pig right now. <laughs> I'm wearing yeah, shorts. Are you wearing shorts? Yeah, I am. Short shorts. <sighs> You got anything else? I got a couple quotes for you. Quotes? Yeah. That's it? I got a quote that's... Uh, Down and Graham and going deep. There you go. It's a profound UFO quote of the week. <laughs> Words to ponder. Okay. All right. Can you turn that down now? No please? chance. It's a profound <laughs> UFO <laughs> quote of the week. Nikki yes. gets full jingle experience. This is Thank from you. my. Uh, this is from my email from Serious Disclosure, my email marketing thing that they sent me. It's uh, historical what? quotes from political figures about UFOs. You're just fucking. You're just reading other people's quotes. And, uh... Yeah. <laughs> it's for to, it's to be spread. That's why they send this email out. Okay. It's like spread it. So now we're it on. we're a show for fucking. No, no, no. It's just a fucking quote from a famous guy. Admiral Roscoe Hillencotter. From who, though? It all comes from fucking Richard Greer. (laughs) (laughs) He's the first director of the CIA, 1947 to 1950. And you know what? The CIA was started in, I think, a month after Roswell. I mean, is that a coincidence? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. I thought it was right after the KKK. What? (laughs) Oh, no, that was the NRA. (laughs) (laughs) it is time for the truth to be brought out behind the scenes high-ranking air force officials are soberly concerned about ufos but through official secrecy and ridicule many citizens are led to believe the unknown flying objects are nonsense i urge immediate congressional action to reduce the dangers from secrecy about united uh, unidentified flying objects that's from roscoe hill and cotter aliens from space Major Donald E. Kehoe's 1975. Read by Graham Dunlop, Stephen Greer's shill. And then there's a note here. Please note the dangers that Hill and Cotter talks about are from secrecy, not from UFOs, just to be clear. And then I got a, I got a quote here that's appropriate for this episode coming up. From Tesla. You want to jingle, jingle it? Or Don't just... ever do that again. <laughs> jingle? Yeah. I don't have a jingle. No? Okay. And now another edition of the Grime American Goodies. <laughs> so this is uh, this is Nikola Tesla describing well I'll I'll see what, what you think he's describing. Okay. When wireless is perfectly applied, the whole earth will be covered converted into a huge brain. Which in fact is all things being particles of real and rhythmic whole. We shall be able to communicate with one another instantly. The internet. Irrespective of distance. Not only this, but through television and telephony, we shall see and hear one another as perfectly as though we were face to face, despite intervening distances of thousands of miles. 
and the instruments through which we shall be able to do all of this will fit into our vest pockets. That's Tesla. <laughs> That's Tesla from 1926. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Crazy, He's channeling eh? Steve Jobs, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, there you have it. So we should mention a few things, Darren. Um, the blog we talked about the bloggers a little bit. New There's bloggers, new bloggers on on the website, um, and then also uh, your. Is that you, what we're saying? Well, check them out. Just go to the website. Check out the blogs. Yeah, and the, well, and people can blog if they want. They That's can right. Send you an email. Email me. Yeah, email Darren for that. If you can find my email. <clears throat> Just kidding. It's DarrenEckerAmerica.com. Also art, if they want to submit artwork. For? Episodes or for a t-shirt. So, you, so you've gone, we've gone to, even though I do have some physical t-shirts left, I have a bit of an inventory. So if anybody wants them, uh, they can get them for 25 bucks. What? Uh, I wore my Take the Shot uh, shirt to uh, Kroger's yesterday. So. I got nice. a few smiles, a couple of looks, so yeah, pretty successful. Did I just fucking totally railroad your girl? I don't know what you're trying to do. <laughs> here. So, anyways, you you got us on Redbubble, right? We're on Redbubble. You want to talk about that? People can submit art for that. People can submit art for that to nap. Aquamarket.com. And that's for different T-shirts. So you can check out if you just want to go to grammarica.ca/swag. S-W-A-G, that will take you over there, and you can, uh, I think we got like 10 different or 11 different designs on there right now. Yeah. And, and, um, so you can get those as stickers, I think there's some of them you can get as iPhone cases, travel mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, sweaters, basically, it's a ton of inventory that we never would have been able to handle the overhead on. Yeah. So like, you know, like hoodies and travel mugs probably never would have happened unless we could find something like this. Yeah. And I mean, the pricing, it might end up costing a little more than, than we were doing it for before, but I don't think it's, but no, I don't think it would be much. Cause right now I think it's like, they're from like 25 to 27 bucks for a t-shirt plus like $5 shipping. But I think when that's Canadian. So once you transfer that over to us, we were 25 us. It's probably pretty much the same. Yeah, so we don't get much out of it. We get a few bucks, right? Five bucks, uh, something like that, less than that per shirt, let's say, as an example. Less, less than five bucks. Yeah, so it is a way to donate to the show and wear some swag and just, you know, marketing for us. That's right. So send, uh, yeah, if you have some T-shirt designs, you can send those over to nap at com. Uh, so you want to talk about the episode order? What about it? It's not a thing anymore. Yeah. But people can still submit art if they want to back episodes and stuff. But I think we're getting rid of the Oh, yes, the, to the, the back art. episodes. But I think we're getting rid of the art contest thing. There just wasn't enough interest, really. And we got a real good artist. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, of course, big thanks to Nikki for coming on the show. My pleasure. I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, I got a little Gramerica altar here. Let me see if I can turn my camera on. Can y'all see it if I turn it on? Uh, yeah, I can see it. Yeah. 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 Okay, can you see behind me? Oh, yeah, nice. I, I get my big head out of the way. Yeah, made me a little Gramerica altar just for the show. So, yeah, that's my, my new gray T-shirt. I'm wearing uh, 
I'm wearing the original blue. Yeah. Which is, it's always a, it's always a conversation starter too. Uh, I had to give my grandson bonus points because he actually knew what a moa was. So I, I was impressed. As long as he doesn't know what the doobie is. Uh, well, uh, uh, that did come up. <laughs> what is he smoking? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Tobacco. Well, he's an Indian. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there you go. Oh, uh, oh. Well, support the show. Yep. GreatAmerica.ca slash support. Uh, there's all sorts of different monthly options there. Anything from a buck a month, which is about 25 cents a show, uh, up to 30 bucks a month. Um, or just a one-time donation really helps as well. Yeah, one-time donation sometimes really help, and uh, all the time. And uh, yeah, so I get on yeah, I was a subscriber, and I I switched over to donations because me and PayPal had another falling out. So you know, it's like they're the best thing going sometimes, and they're the worst thing going sometimes. So and I. Plus, I fucked up the Bitcoin thing pretty bad recently, so I'm not pushing that too hard right now. Do you have an address for people though? No, you don't have that yet? Yeah, I can dig that up. It's on right. my laptop. So I'll get the proper one. The people that the other Bitcoins went to are not playing ball or even responding to my emails anymore. Wow. So first they said that that was impossible for that to happen. And then when I sent them the screenshot of the transaction. From, they ran away. They, they just, nothing. I sent an ad like Bitcoin two. And go. <laughs> I've sent a couple emails since then, just like, "Hey, anyone going to respond?" Nothing. They just say it's a hundred bucks. They're taking a hundred yeah. bucks, and they're just like, yeah. "Fuck you!" Yeah, really? Nice. Was it worth it, you motherfuckers? Yeah. Mm. Well, it was my own here. stupid fault. Really. Yeah. So yeah, we like to get feedback here as well. Graham at GrahamAmerica dot com. Stories and synchronicities and sightings and. Whatever feedback, it's all good. Lucid dreams, trip reports. Yeah, and I do want to make a correction for our intro with uh, Walt Thornhill here. I kind of messed up a couple of his things here. He actually published uh, two books. One was uh, Thunderbolts of the Gods, and the second was The Electric Universe. Um, David Talbot was the author of the Saturn myth. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Graham gets it wrong. They did co-author something, though, didn't they? Yeah, they have yeah, worked together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're not, uh, you're not way off base. No, I just wanted to, yeah. He was too nice to call me out on it. <laughs> not, all, right. not all guests are that polite. Not all co-hosts are that polite. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Graham. All right, guys, it's been Thank a blast. You, you guys uh, should enjoy this uh, chat with Wall.
All right, tonight we're crisscrossing all over the globe. We have Wal Thornhill from Australia, and he is from the Electric Universe, and he's published a couple books with David Talbot, The Saturn Myth, and uh, Thunderbolts of the Gods, and he's got his website, Hollow Science, which uh, summarizes the Electric Universe model. He's been a keynote speaker at some workshops. Actually, they've got Electric Electric Universe workshops happening since, or or I should say uh, conferences happening since 2012. It's super, uh, super interesting content here. The uh, Thunderbolts Project website is full of good it's information. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, we're, we're super excited. And uh, this has all come about because uh, Nikki Benefield won our uh, contest for fundraising, and he is with us tonight to join us. Thanks for coming on, Nikki. On his new iPad. Oh, no problem. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, got the iPad going. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So thanks for uh, coming on. Wall, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, spring bursting out over here. Oh. You son well, of a spring, bitch. Right, yeah. We're going into winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dog days of summer here. Been high 90s all week. Wow. Uh-huh. So, Wall, uh, this is one of those things where I was listening to a lot of your a lot of your YouTube lectures and reading your website, and it's a lot of deep information. Like the, if, I feel like, you know, you guys are onto something really big here, and and uh, mm. it's hard to know where to even start. So I guess I guess it'd be best <laughs> to start at like just give us an idea of, of the website, like the the uh, the strategy of your website, I think, and then we can get into some of the the finer stuff. But it's it's pretty deep, so I I kind of mm. want to let you just uh, give us a little rundown. Yes, well, my website uh, began as an attempt to provide. Uh, interested people with a scientific argument for all of the various things that were being proposed uh, in regards to an electric universe. It's a very simple uh, model and of course this is uh, the way science was heading in the 19th century before Mm. 20th century madness overtook us and uh, it just says that the electric force is the only force you need to explain all that we observe and that uh, the universe is fundamentally an electrical phenomenon. Um, but this has taken a lifetime to get to that point, to that simplification. Uh, along the way, it's, it's been a, a long journey. Um, my uh, colleagues uh, in America, Dave Talbot and many others now, uh, are involved with the Thunderbolts project, it's called. And that uh, came out of the work of David Talbot and a number of other mytho-historians, I think is the best term to describe them. These are people who were inspired by Emanuel Velikovsky way back Mm -hmm. in the 1950s with his best-selling book, Worlds in Collision. Now, that caused a real storm in scientific circles. In fact, it uh, resulted in a modern-day book burning by Macmillan, the textbook publisher. Uh, because the academic said, uh, if, if you insist on uh, publishing or continuing to publish this book, we'll uh, withdraw our orders for your textbooks. So Macmillan uh, had to hand over the rights to Doubleday and uh, and burn whatever copies they had left. Now, it was a bestseller for months on end in the New York Times listings, so that was quite a quite a thing. There were a number of scientists who uh, supported Velikovsky, Mm -hmm. but the astronomers uh, lost it totally. Um, And uh, they said that his ideas of uh, 
planets moving around on uh, orbits which were threatening uh, within his uh, memory of mankind uh, disobeyed Newton's laws. Now, theoreticians are very uh, fond of their man-made laws, and anyone who challenges them is in for a, a, a rough ride, and Velikovsky certainly copped it. Anyway, uh, the uh, the way that Velikovsky worked was uh, the same kind that, uh, of a technique that detectives use, that is, a forensic technique. You've got a whole lot of unreliable witnesses from all around the world who said various things about what was seen in the sky. What you have to do is to look for the odd uh, uh, things that accord. You know, it's like uh, if it was a bank robber and he had two different coloured socks on that's, and uh, more than one witness said that, then you would take that as being concrete proof that the uh, witness, uh, the, uh, the robber was wearing two different coloured socks and so on. So you can, by piecing together information from right around the world, uh, they managed to put together quite a detailed uh, story, which is, was an improvement, an extension on Velikovsky's work, because Velikovsky, of course, being a pioneer, didn't get everything right. No, no pioneer can. Uh, so I was inspired because of the notion that the solar system had a history, and a very interesting history, a dynamic one, and that uh, electricity was involved. This was the big uh, uh, challenge that Velikovsky threw down to astronomers. He said that uh, if Newton's laws are sacrosanct, then this book is a heresy. That was in the opening pages of his book. And, of course, it was treated as a heresy, uh, which really isn't a scientific way to approach any new idea. Um the people, David Talbot in particular, I met him in 1974 for the first time at the first and only international conference on Velikovsky's work, which was called uh, The Recent History of the Solar System. And uh, it was 20 years later that I caught up with David again when asking him for a copy of his book, The Saturn Myth, and he said he was having his first conference World Conference in Portland, Oregon. That was in 1994. And uh, we got talking and I said, uh, he said to me, have I got anything to present? And I said, yes, I have. Uh, and so he invited me to that meeting. Now, it was at that meeting that I saw the imagery uh, projected on the uh, screen, which convinced me that uh, what David Talbot had uncovered was actual uh, images of electrical discharges between planets, in other words, the thunderbolts of the gods. And it was six years later, in the year 2000, when we managed to get an expert on high-energy plasma experiments at, from Los Alamos Labs to attend our conference, and when he saw the imagery that we were presenting, he said, this is classified information. He said, this is the kind of thing we see in these high-energy plasma experiments. He then went out and he said that he goes hunting occasionally in the desert around Los Alamos and would um, walk past the Indian petroglyphs. And he said that uh, with this realisation, he regarded these petroglyphs in an entirely new light. It never occurred to him that they were actually mimicking the things that he was seeing in his high-energy experiments. So that was the point of convergence between 
the uh, mytho-historical uh, record and the forensic investigation and my uh, scientific angle, trying to uh, work out from what Velikovsky had written how you would explain all of this uh, in real scientific terms. And uh, so that's how it's all happened. Now, the American group, uh, with David Talbot leading the charge, has uh, created the Thunderbolts.info website, which is where most of the activity takes place. Uh, my articles tend to be longer, more uh, aimed at those who are interested in science. And also, I've been so busy in recent years that I, uh, most of my material ends up as YouTube space news on thunderbolts.info mm -hmm. and I haven't got, had time or I need somebody to help me you know, put up material on my website so it's a bit sparse but certainly it gives you a very good uh, historical story starting back in uh, about 1998 or so which is when I first began really publishing this kind of material. So that gives you an idea. There's the two websites, mine, which is uh, for those who are interested in more the scientific aspects, and the Thunderbolts, which covers everything and has all sorts of uh, means of access to those who are interested to get involved. What's your website URL? Uh, it's holoscience, H-O-L-O, science.com. The uh, origin of the holo, of course, was from holistic. In other words, uh, the science of the electric universe has no boundaries. Uh, you can be uh, um, interested in almost any subject and it will have some connection. Yeah, I love how you have all the synopsises on there as well. Like it's the both websites are really good to just lead you through a chapter by chapter um, the summary of everything. Yes, I think you'll find more new, uh, challenging and new ideas on one page than you find in whole books. So how uh, is it? I'm, Go ahead, Nikki. I'm, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I'm new to all this, and that's the website Thunderbolts Info was where I didn't even know the true definition of plasma. I'd heard, you know, I thought it was part of your blood or something. So, uh, yes. yeah, it started out there, and, you know, uh, so there's a lot of information there. When YouTube videos makes it easy for the intellectually challenged to follow along, you know, so really appreciate well, it. Yeah, the whole idea is that the idea is simple, and we should be able to teach this to, uh, or begin to teach it in primary school uh, in place of the nonsense they're taught now. Um, and uh, because it opens up science to everyone, uh, people who want to try experiments in their garage and uh, those who are interested in the arts and uh, cultural aspects, because this says a lot about the history of mankind and the things we suffered and why we behave rather uh, in an insane way today, a destructive way, both to, towards each other and to the planet we live on. Hmm. And when you begin to understand what we've been through, you can begin to under, uh, find ways of healing from that. And I think one of the big messages that Velikovsky left, one of his final books, Mankind in Amnesia, that was his major concern, was that mankind did not understand why he was behaving so irrationally. And of course, when you look at the news and what's going on around the world, it is totally irrational. And uh, he said that just like a patient who suffered a terrible trauma and has uh, suffered amnesia as a result, 
it is possible to heal from it, but the first thing is to be led to understand that event that caused all of the pain and the the horror. What event would we be talking about? The events uh, are generally referred to as doomsday. In other words, uh, ancient man was confronting forces in the sky which he felt was going to destroy the earth and everything on it. And in some places, of course, it did. Um, So uh, when you, I mean, it's almost unimaginable what those people witnessed. It was both at sometimes fantastic and awe-inspiring, at other times uh, more frightening than anything you can imagine today. What did and uh, so this is uh, interesting. Right at the bat, I remember we've we, we've talked to people about. I assume that would be some sort of an impact. No impacts are generally avoided in the electric universe because when you understand gravity, you realize that um, you cannot have a stable universe if all you've got is an attractive force because. Obviously, everything will try and fall together and form a clump uh, if only if gravity is only attractive. But uh, there is an astronomer, or was an astronomer, I should say, he died just recently, who will go down in the history books as the second Galileo. His name was Halton Arp, A-R-P, and uh, he wrote a book called Seeing Red after years of trying to get uh, his work um, accepted by, or at least looked at seriously, by the establishment, and his work showed that the Big Bang never happened. That um, he was actually uh, worked with Hubble, and even Hubble didn't believe in the Big Bang. He thought that that was the least likely explanation for, yeah, you know, what's called the redshift of um, distant stars, faint stars. Helton Arp showed that uh, the high redshift and low brightness is a function of the age. A very youthful object has low energy. Its uh, light is faint and uh, the um, spectrum it puts out is shifted to the low energy end of the spectrum, to the red. And that was the real origin of most of the redshift. Instead and so, of, uh, of we, course, instead, yeah, of, instead of these things, right? exactly, instead of them rushing away, he said the universe is fairly static and it's of unknown age and extent. So uh, that paints a completely different picture. But he said if the universe is fairly static, and he deduced that from the calculations and his uh, extensive observations, he was a primarily an observational astronomer, not a theoretician, and he produced the Atlas of Peculiar Galaxies, which is still referred to today by uh, astronomers. Um, yes, uh, If uh, the universe is fairly static and things aren't either rushing apart or falling inwards, it suggests that gravity must be a repulsive force over the large distances between galaxies and uh, stars. And uh, I've come up with a model which explains that. It has vast repercussions for our understanding of what's going on in space and in stars and uh, everything. I mean, it's a completely different cosmology, (coughs) the electric universe. Does the solar system still operate in the conventional manner? Like, I mean, like the rotations and everything else still work the same, it's just not gravity at play? Well, we call it gravity, but gravity itself is an electrical force. Um, It's uh, so pathetically weak that 
you know, we can use a little magnet to lift things away from the six sextillion tons of the Earth. Uh, it, it's uh, almost zero, uh, the force of gravity. But um, we're attracted to the Earth uh, just like iron filings are to a magnet. And uh, I hope my wife takes that. <laughs> um, the, uh, the thing is that, of course, that uh, an iron filing uh, is magnetizable. In other words, it doesn't care which pole of the magnet you uh, point at it. It will go to the north or the south pole. It's attracted equally to either. Now, large bodies like the Earth and the Sun and uh, the other planets essentially have one pole facing inwards and the other pole facing outwards, and we're attracted to the uh, outward pole. But that means that all bodies have the same outward pole facing each other, and that means that they will repel each other, just like uh, the two south poles of a magnet will do. And you've all, I mean, everyone's experienced that, trying to push the two like poles of a magnet together, uh, two magnets together. That's and right. uh, you can feel that force uh, pull, pushing them apart. So well, that's what... Oh, uh, sorry. Go ahead. No. So basically, that's like the Earth. The Earth is never going to fall into the sun or fall out of its no. fall out. You know, there is because that's one thing that's always struck me is you know it'd have to be so fucking perfect for it to get that speed that it doesn't fall out of the orbit of the sun <laughs> and it doesn't fall into the sun. It makes more sense to me that it's stuck there. It can't get closer. It can't get farther. Yes. Uh one of the uh, breakthroughs I had a few years ago was to work out how the solar system can be like clockwork when ancient man witnessed uh, uh, Venus as a comet, for instance, and so on. And yet Venus today has the most circular orbit in the solar system. So whatever Venus was doing oh. was actually circularizing its orbit. And just recently I've had proof of the concept that I put forward, and that is that Venus today is um, ejecting more uh, electricity, if you like, electrons, than the Earth is. So it's still uh, discharging. It, it's an electrical discharge that uh, is the important thing. So, so that brings me back to what I, I was going to ask you about the, you know, the ancient man again who saw that, and then and then mm. that that trauma was carried through almost like a morph morphic resonance, like R Rupert Sheldrake kind of thing, until the, we're still living with that trauma now. The the yes. fact that we could yeah. be, you know, demolished at any second if some sort of cosmic event happened. Oh, yes. I mean, and you can see this in uh, the films, the movies and that, that we've got all the disaster yeah. movies. Yeah. And you've got to ask yourself, well, why are we obsessed with these things? And why was it that people were frightened to death of comets in the past when no one had ever experienced anything other than just a, a bright light in the sky, perhaps, or even a dull light in the sky uh, moving across the heavens? There's no reason to think that that is going to uh, um, herald the fall of kings unless you understand the history where kingship was actually uh, more or less associated with the old planetary gods. Wow. So, um, you know, it all, this is the thing that I enjoyed about Velikovsky's book, was that he ranged far and wide but drew all of these um, strings, if you like, together that were just dangling with no obvious connection. He drew them together and made a picture which uh, was uh, both uh, profound and, uh, for me, intellectually very exciting. I think I was lucky. I, I read his book before I went to university. And so uh, I entered university very skeptical of a lot of the things I was being taught. And that is a great way to do science.
Yeah. So, so, so that part of Velikovsky's theory stick, you guys have stuck with part of that in the, in the EU then that, uh, Oh yes. That Venus, can you you describe, can can you describe that a little bit more for people that aren't aware of it? So it's about Venus and the collision, right? Sure. Yes. Yes. His uh, thesis was that, uh, both Mars and Venus played uh, crucial roles, uh, in mankind's history. And I think one of the difficulties he created for himself was that he brought them down into historical times, you know, back about 1500 BC. And that created all kinds of difficulties um, right. <laughs> of providing evidence for this. Because at that time, you know, you had the pyramids had been built and there was uh, information written on the walls and hieroglyphs and so on. And you could uh, look at those and say, well, you know, uh, where's your evidence? Uh it was the people who followed David Talbot, Eve um, Cochran, Eduardo Cardona, the principal uh, people, who showed that the even at the time the pyramids were built and those hieroglyphs were uh, chiselled on the walls, um, that the events were still a memory even then. And it wasn't until we uh, met up with um, Tony Peratt, as I mentioned before, the uh, plasma physicist in 2000, that we realised that it was the prehistoric people, the ones who chiselled those uh, strange stick figures and so on on uh, rocks, which is a very difficult thing to do, by the way, uh, and that those uh, figures that they chiselled, which look quite odd, um, actually mimic uh, plasma formations, um, high-energy plasma formations, and they're found around the world. It's not a case of just in North America. They're found everywhere. Uh, the, the, even the Australian uh, Aboriginal people have um, uh, certain figures down here which, if you uh, rotate them, account for their latitude and longitude, they match up with the North American Indian ones. Uh, there's also their stories of um, uh, figures in the sky and the power flowed down from them uh, through some column. And this is all aspects of uh, the later work. What Velikovsky did, though, was to uh, provide evidence for um, Venus having been a comet. And that uh, evidence uh, is incontrovertible, in my opinion. There's no way you can deny it. Also, as a result of that, he predicted that Venus would be extremely hot because he said it was incandescent within human memory. And, of course, the very first spacecraft that flew past Venus, their temperature readings went off the scale. So they had to do the experiment again on another spacecraft. And they found that it's um, some metals are actually molten at the surface temperature of Venus. He also said that the rotation would be odd, and of course it rotates slowly backwards. Hmm. So uh, all of these things were not predicted. There's nothing like it from any astronomer, and yet these are the things that he predicted before those spacecraft confirmed it. Um, now, as far as Mars is concerned. Mars, of course, is known as the god of war. And the question is, well, why? Uh, It's not just to do with the red colour. In fact, uh, the red colour has a lot of significance in a lot of uh, religions around the world uh, associated with the planetary god. But um, the fact that Mars was actually close enough for the ancients to witness 
surface features is shown by the fact that that colossal gash on Mars, that's Valus Marineris, it stretches for a third of the way around the planet. Uh, Mars was referred to by the North American Indians as Scarface. Hmm. And, of course, the later legends about um, Achilles and so on, who was a, a version of Mars, uh, he gets scarred in battle as well. So um, the ancients saw Mars up close enough to be able to um, see surface features. All of this means that the solar system we have today is not what we had originally, uh, that there has been chaos, but that that chaos uh, has been sorted out. And the big question for me was, how do you do that? And my question to Velikovsky when I was lucky enough to visit him at his home in 1979 was, what is it we don't understand about gravity? Because that was the, the thing with which the astronomers beat him down. And he felt that it had to do with the electrical structure of matter. Now, everything we're made from is actually made up of charged particles, but they're there in equal numbers of positive and negative so that on balance it's, everything is neutral. We don't get electrocuted when we touch things. Uh, and this electrical aspect of matter... Uh, can be looked at as uh, the reason why, for instance, uh, molecules form. All the solids and uh, liquids and everything we witness, both on Earth and out in space, is a result of electrical forces between atoms. Now, what I did was I said, okay, what about uh, gravity then? What if the particles, the charged particles inside atoms, are made up of smaller atoms, if you like, smaller orbiting systems. And if you try that model, it's a case of repeated patterns, which nature is famous for, uh, you actually find out that tiny distortions of subatomic particles can give rise to this very weak force we call gravity. But just as atoms and uh, the particles inside atoms can produce magnetism, Gravity is like a form of magnetism, but at the subatomic level, and that's why you cannot shield it, because the at the particles don't care whether they're in a metal atom or a non-metal or whatever. They'll just <laughs> daisy chain, if you like. Uh, so that's why you can't um, uh, shield from gravity. All of this made sense, and it also showed me that you could explain how a gravitational system, which is inherently unstable... If one of the planets was to diverge off its orbit a tiny bit, there is absolutely nothing in the gravitational theory of Newton or Einstein to uh, restore order. It will continue to uh, ex you know, leave its um, clockwork path until uh, the whole system falls apart. And, of course, the scientists of the past knew that. Uh, they had no answer for it, so it's one of those questions that's sort of been shoved in the bottom drawer and uh, forgotten about. So I guess but you have the particulate yeah, form of gravity, for lack of a better term, would just be like it's not traveling much distances. It's a lot more local. No, actually, this uh, longer, what I call the longitudinal force, it's like the difference between um, uh, waving on a rope which is light, and pulling on the rope. You know, if you uh, have two people either end of a rope and you wave one end, it takes some time for the wave to reach the other end. Whereas if you tug on it, the other person feels it very quickly. 
And this is another aspect of the electric universe. It makes sense of light and uh, gravity, and gravity operates uh, instantly. If there's any delay in the force of gravity, the solar system would uh, fly apart uh, quite rapidly because all of the planets would be pulled to where the objects no longer are. And it would be like swinging uh, a weight around your head. Uh, your hand is pulling the, uh, the weight, if you like, the rock or whatever, uh, slightly ahead of where uh, the centre of the rotation is, which means that it's trying to fly away. And, of course, the planets have nothing to hold them there, so, apart from their normal gravity, so yeah. they will... The whole system falls apart. Until, the, until they questions. came up with dark energy, right? Uh, well, yeah. Somebody said that uh, with black holes and dark energy and dark matter, soon there'll be so much darkness we'll know nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, all of these things that are invented, and this is one of the features of 20th century science, when they started handing out Nobel Prizes for inventing new particles and new forces, of course, everyone was gung-ho. And any problem that pops up, you just invent a new particle or a new force. But as one uh, well-known astrophysicist has pointed out, there are now more uh, fudge factors than there are actually observations to prove the theory. So uh, science is in a real mess, and uh, quite a few well-credentialed uh, scientists are actually writing books about it now. Uh, I've just finished reading one by Alex Onziker called um, Bankrupting Physics, and it's a scathing uh, 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 expose of the way science is being done today and all of the uh, language and so on, most of which makes no sense whatsoever. Um, you know, you talk about particle physics and they talk about quarks and then you've got up and down ones and ones with charm and others with uh, colour. What the heck does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It, it's it's just nonsense. But it, it it satisfies mathematicians, who are not physicists, by the way. Physicists or physics was originally a natural philosophy, and that was where you thought about the ramifications of what you were saying and whether you could justify it. Nowadays, if it you can, uh, you know, work out an equation and put it on a computer screen, everyone's happy. But that's virtual reality. It's not it's not physics. So. Um, <laughs> some people look at look at what we're doing, which doesn't involve uh, much mathematics. In fact, uh, I, I've referred to E equals MC squared the way Stephen Hawking did. You know, it was, uh, it, provided you only use that once in your book, uh, you'll only halve the number of readers. But uh, I've pointed out that even E equals MC squared is not understood by uh, scientists at present. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be building that large hadron collider. Uh, yeah. So the this is one of the things I think that uh, grabs a lot of engineers and practical people is that they can see the sense in the electric universe. They can see uh, ways of using it to make real breakthroughs. And uh, this is, of course, happening now. There are experiments being carried out, which uh, could be quite groundbreaking. Is this like um, China's new communication system? Yeah, uh, the, the funny thing is that we really don't understand how to communicate um, using radio waves. Only uh, donkeys would use uh, slow-moving radio waves to uh, transfer information. 
anyway, uh, just a bit off the track. <laughs> but all, all sorts of things open up, uh, and you can see the connections between uh, various things, uh, even uh, in the realm of biology and consciousness and uh, memory, all of these things. Uh, the Electric Universe provides a model for experimenters to think about ways of testing new ideas. Uh, and this is the problem in science. It is a monoculture. It has single ideas which are consensus. And, of course, as Michael Crichton pointed out, if it's a consensus, it ain't science. <laughs> and uh, and that's true. Uh, all of the big breakthroughs in the past have come from individuals and often those who were outside the discipline in which they finally became famous in. Our, uh, we seem to forget, you know, we forget the lessons of the past. That's the problem. How are um, <clears throat> planets and stuff formed in the EU model? Oh, that's easy. In fact, it's actually been uh, discovered by the Herschel Infrared Space Telescope where they can peer through the... Uh, dust and whatnot in those molecular clouds out in deep space. And uh, what they found surprised astronomers because they saw stars forming along a glowing filament. Now, gravity doesn't work that way. Gravity sucks things into a central point. It doesn't suck things into a, a linear arrangement. But this uh, method of uh, forming stars was actually predicted by plasma cosmologists, which is, and plasma cosmology is a peer-reviewed uh, discipline recognised by the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, one of the biggest uh, professional organisations in the world. However, astronomers are not interested because they don't attend the plasma sciences meetings uh, because they are satisfied with a, a kind of bastardised version of plasma science which Hans Alfain, the father of plasma cosmology, warned would lead to a crisis in astrophysics. <laughs> well, I, it's just in a case, as usual, of how bad does it have to get before you declare it a crisis? Mm. Uh, because it really is uh, shambles uh, right now. Uh, anyway, we get back to the stars. What happens is that um, you get, in effect, a lightning bolt inside a cloud. I mean, we see them on Earth, well, they're out there in space too. It's just that they're hidden inside the cloud. And um, the it's not only stars that are formed along that lightning bolt, because electromagnetically what happens is that um, it forms a kind of magnetic pinch. It squeezes material from around that filament, and those filaments are just like the ones you see in those little novelty plasma balls. Uh, that sort of writhe around as if they're alive. Well, the same thing happens in these clouds. The uh, the filaments draw dust and gas towards them and very powerfully compress it along that filament until it glows. And then the stars form along the filament, but also objects of all sizes, planets, moons, all sorts of uh, sizes form along that uh, filament. But the filament is moving, and as it moves, it leaves these objects behind, and these little objects, depending on how they formed and when they formed, are all moving at different speeds. So you've got this um, zoo of stars and planets and all sorts of objects uh, moving around, as Tony Pratt said in his high-energy experiments, 
uh, electrical experiments, the little plasmoids, he called them, scatter like buckshot. Now, in gravitational theory, those objects would just move around chaotically and without capturing each other. But in the electric universe model, the exchange of these thunderbolts or these uh, electrical exchanges between bodies actually uh, causes capture and circularization of orbits. So this is how you form planetary systems. And so, when you look at the... I was just going to mention uh, quickly, uh, now they've discovered more than 3,500 of these exoplanetary systems, and what do you reckon? They all look strange and different to what we have here in this uh, the Sun system. But when you think all of these objects, most of them, I should say, not all, are captured, then the capture process will, you'll end up with a, a, a complete zoo of uh, exoplanetary systems. And this is exactly what they found. So that's what, getting back to the original um, Venus thing, the Velikovsky thing. So there's a collision and then they basically, instead of falling into the, you know, like by gravity, they would snap into place uh, due to the electromagnetic like uh, pressure or whatever, or... or no, uh, actually, it's... It's quite simple. What happens is that um, uh, when two bodies approach one another, they have around them what's called a plasma sheath, which is like a cocoon uh, where, in which the electrical field of the star or the planet is contained. And um, it's only when those cocoons, which are huge, I mean the sun's extends to about 100 times the radius of the Earth's orbit out into space, and it's known as the heliosphere, that plasma sheath uh, is the extent of the sun's electrical environment. It's it's huge. Now, another star, like the sun, moving towards us, would, when it was twice that distance away, uh, at, or even further, uh, begin to uh, connect with the sun's electrical environment. And when that happens, uh, all hell breaks loose because the... One, of, one or other of the bodies has to get rid of charge to sort of um, match the new environment. And in doing so, it becomes a comet. That's all a comet is. It's an object, charged object trying to achieve electrical equilibrium with a changing environment. As comets rush towards the sun, the electrical environment is getting more intense and they get to the point where it starts stripping matter off and, uh, and ejecting it into space in uh, beams, electrical beams. It's nothing to do with uh, water evaporating off the surface. Um, so, uh, and it's this exchange of charge which makes the difference because that changes the mass and the gravity of the object that's discharging. And it does it in such a way that it tends to circularize the orbit and to cause capture. So uh, when these planets and stars are all formed in uh, one of these uh, lightning bolts in a molecular cloud, you have objects of all sizes uh, and uh, electrical uh, capabilities uh, wandering around uh, just right for capture. Now, the sun has these gas giants all at great distances away from it. They were all captured at different times. Uh, you know, the story of how the solar system formed is just a bedtime story. Uh, to try and make us feel safe because it all happened you know, billions of years ago and uh, it's all been clockwork ever since. It's been anything but. 
the Earth was involved in the last capture event, and that's what led to uh, the final episodes uh, which Velikovsky uh, uncovered. Uh, one of the team, Dwight Cardona, did a lot of work on the earlier memories of mankind, and uh, that story is just phenomenal. I mean, it would... Uh, you could, uh, it would... <laughs> It would out science fiction, any science fiction movie ever made, because, and and then it's real. And as they say, uh, truth is often stranger than fiction. So the story of the Earth and the human race is uh, is quite a mind bender. Uh, but we can trace it back quite well. What and, was that book uh, called again? Uh, well, Dwight Cardona has written a series of books which are very detailed in their research. Uh, I recommend them to anyone who really wants to know the story of the Earth. Uh, and this is the Star series, and they're available on the Thunderbolts.info website. Oh, okay, good. Now, you, the Saturn Sun, uh, that is that what you're talking about, that the, the, the Sun captured uh, electricity from Saturn? Is that? Yes. I read stuff about that, and so that's where that's that right. came from, and, and was that where uh, Mars was involved and became so yes. scarred? And, okay. That's right. Yep. Uh, the ancients witnessed uh, Mars being scarred. Uh, that's why the legends uh, refer to the battles of Mars and his fight against the chaos monsters, which were the fire-breathing dragons, which is a, a rendition of the, some of these plasma discharges. There is no such thing as a fire-breathing dragon. However, uh, the Chinese one is even playing with a celestial ball, which was Venus. So it gives you, uh, it's funny, you know, people who get to know the Electric Universe material and the thunderbolts of the gods uh, walk into museums and they see everything in a completely different light to what's written on all of the little plaques. Yeah. So what, what, um, what was I going to say about that? So the, do you think that the growing earth theory fits in with this whole model or, or the other question I have no, is the, the other question I have is, uh, well, let's answer that one first. So you, you don't think that fits into the model? No, it's unnecessary. Well, um, or growing planets, of ideas, really. Of course, yeah. One of the ideas, of course, uh, to try and explain the shape of the earth, uh, and the surface features uh, is the idea that you can fit the continental uh, patterns together like a jigsaw puzzle, and that that is a uh, that shows that they were once together and they've moved apart. Well, no one has been able to show how you produce a force to actually move them apart in the first place. Uh, the other thing is that to expand the Earth, which is one uh, popular option. Uh, requires that you add material to the interior of the Earth, and there's no known way of doing that. Um, the the thing about the Earth, too, is that if those kinds of things happened on the Earth, then they should have happened on Venus and they should have happened on Mars, and you should see evidence of the same kind of thing, uh, you know, an expansion of bodies uh, in other parts of the solar system, but you don't. The Earth is unique, and this is one of the aspects of this story of how planets are formed. Every planet and star has its own history and its own story. They are not... Uh, the planets around the sun were not formed at the same time or just after the sun formed and from the same material. They all have their own unique stories. And if you look at the Earth 
uh, and the shape of those scars on the Earth, because the ocean basins are scars, a huge amount of material has been removed from them, they have the features of a massive pole-to-pole electric discharge, as if we were caught up in the crossfire between two larger bodies. And uh, one of the features of electrical scarring is that you get uh, parallel sides to the uh, the scars, and you get terracing, which, uh, of course, are the continental shelves. Uh, the stretching earth doesn't actually explain continental shelves. And also, the electric discharges cause, um, uh, what do they call them, uh, coronal discharge streamers at right angles to the main discharge channel, which is the kind of patterns that they've found in the uh, uh, mid-oceanic ridges. So the whole thing is a, a probably a birth scar of the Earth um, because when I said that bodies of all sizes are formed in these uh, cosmic lightning bolts, when the uh, lightning filament moves on, the objects left behind find themselves under different uh, degrees of electrical stress. And one, the simplest way for an object to relieve that stress is to get rid of material, eject a lot of matter. And this is why the gas giants have so many moons and so on. To achieve equilibrium, all of the close orbiting objects uh, were ejected from within the body. Remember I said that gravity is dipolar, which means that there is a repulsive force inside these bodies which can assist the ejection of matter from uh, within a planet, particularly the gas giants and stars. And this is why you find hot Jupiters orbiting so close to stars, which is a total puzzle for astronomers. And the reason is that those hot Jupiters were actually spat out of the star in an attempt to achieve stability. Wow. So he does show that we had Neil Adams on on the show, and he was talking about the growing, I shouldn't say growing Earth or expanding planets, because he he showed that uh, some mm. of the moons, it looks like, some of the moons around Saturn and Jupiter, I can't remember those really, Europa, those, Europa was a really crazy one, and it really <laughs> did look like it expanded. But Yeah. Now, if you look at the pattern on Europa, it's a series of trenches that have been dug by lightning uh, hurtling across the surface from one side of the uh, moon to the other. And where uh, it terminates, there's a chaotic terrain which has been broken up by the discharge, leaving the body. So I would suggest that Europa was caught in the crossfire between another large body and Jupiter. And, uh, you know, in its orbit, it would come around and uh, and get uh, zapped. And in the process, the easiest way for an electrical discharge to move uh, past the moon is to uh, tear around its surface. And that appears to be what happened on Europa. Mm. Uh, the channels themselves uh, show that material has been... Uh, uh, it's dug a trench and trust, tossed the material out to either side. And this is characteristic of um, a, a surface lightning discharge. So if you were there, would you just see, like... Would it? Would you, like, see an event, or would it just be like, you know, the Bugs Bunny, and it'd just be like... <laughs> some dirt flying up goes flying past you or would it be like a crazy explosive uh it'd be like a linear explosion but um uh, it'd be extremely rapid you know the speed of lightning <laughs> so so what what i find hard to grasp visually is is like the electric a lot of your, your work makes sense to me as far as like everything's electrical as well right and and but when when i when mm. you talk about the 
catastrophes that can happen in, in a little solar system like ours, I feel like the universe is actually pretty stable, like that, that all these galaxies move around. Like we haven't seen a lot of change in our time. Is that just because really our time is such a small speck, you know, universally or like, or wouldn't we be witnessing yeah. this type of event happening in closer galaxies now that we have the technology? Not galaxies. Uh, yeah. Galaxies. Uh, planetary systems. Planetary systems. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's only been the last few decades that we've been actually able to uh, detect these uh, bodies uh, orbiting nearby stars. But the with the new telescopes that are being proposed and those that are being built, uh, we shouldn't be able to get more information. At present, we don't have enough information uh, about these systems. But I think even now with the anomalies they're finding, mm -hmm. they need uh, a new model, a new theory. Yeah to help them understand them, because right now uh, it's a complete puzzle. And so in science, you know, what it's always good to have a competing idea so that you can test uh, the two and see which one is better. Unfortunately, as I said, science today is a monoculture of beliefs which are very hard to shift, um, especially because of the institutionalized and government-funded nature of science now. It was, if you go back and read the old science journals of uh, a century or more ago, you see how freewheeling the ideas were yeah. and the lack of censorship. You know, people could propose all sorts of interesting and outrageous ideas, but they weren't stopped from doing it. Nowadays, people are stopped, uh, which means that uh, it's it's much slower to get progress than uh, I think it's ever been in history. But it's only a matter of time now that we, it seems like this new technology that we're getting and these new ways mm. to see the universe, a lot of those results are fitting in with the EU. They are. And this is always encouraging because when uh, you propose a model, uh, you like to see uh, confirmation or at least... Uh, discoveries which are easy to explain. You don't have to invent new forces, particles, or any other uh, stuff like that. It can fit within the yeah, yeah. current model. Yeah. And this is uh, typical. It's been my experience now for uh, decades that the, uh, the the amazing and puzzling discoveries that have been made um, are easily explained and just fit in with the electric universe. Uh, I've been able to make predictions which themselves have been quite outrageous, but also which have been confirmed by space probes. And that also is a good sign of a um, a, a good uh, model, a good theory. Does, there, uh, does the EU theory allow for faster-than-light travel? That's uh, a very good question, and there is a, a kind of um, other another question that you would ask, and that is, why would you bother? Uh, <laughs> because when you understand that the in the electric universe, all matter is connected uh, practically in real time, especially on our galactic level, uh, and that means that there there appears to be a means of communication. The universe is full of information because it's not empty at all. It's the vacuum of space is full. <laughs> it has to be to be able to let light pass from one place to another. Um, when you understand that uh, the universe is full of matter, it's full of information, 
uh, and that uh, gravity itself communicates between planets and stars and that their location right now, that's information, then uh, it seems possible to transmit information over vast distances uh, instantaneously. And if we can figure out how to do that, then uh, it removes the need, possibly, to uh, uh, go physically exploring uh, nearby stars and so on. However, um, the question of whether we can physically travel faster than light, it, I've been thinking a lot about that. It, it depends upon the effect of the medium through which we're traveling at the speed of light. Now, light itself travels through a medium. It has to. So the idea... Dark that, matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the ether. Uh, the old ether, which, yeah, which uh, both um, uh, Maxwell and uh, Heaviside and uh, Einstein all felt was necessary, but Einstein seemed to forget that when he later put his uh, postulates of special relativity together. Uh so you need a medium, and the electric universe proposes that medium is neutrinos. It's composed of neutrinos. Right. And the speed of light is the speed with which those neutrinos can react to a, uh, a varying electric field. Now, if we try and pass matter through neutrinos faster than they can react, do you have a bow shock? And what does that bow shock greater. do? Yeah. And uh, I mean, when particles uh, in nuclear reactors travel faster than the speed of light in water, they give off what's called Cherenkov radiation. So um, does that mean that if we travel faster than light through uh, the so-called vacuum of space, which isn't empty, as I said, uh, do we give off Cherenkov radiation? You know, is Star Trek right uh, as the <laughs> as the craft travels at various warp speeds, um, uh, is it uh, giving off Cherenkov radiation? And in so doing, of course, it's losing energy. And how much energy did you have to put in to uh, achieve that speed and uh, continue uh, to accelerate? The whole idea that you need infinite energy to uh, accelerate a mass to the speed of light comes from uh, interpreting the resistance of matter to being accelerated as being uh, a measure of its mass, it's not. Um, <clears throat> mass itself is an electrical variable uh, because E equals mc squared tells us so. Energy and mass are properties of matter and they're related to the electrical uh, energy within them. So theoretically, then that, that means that like anti-gravity and all that could is probably obtainable through some sort of like electrical or magnetic. It's like some sort of electromagnet, net, the electromagneticism. <laughs> so like if you say you could hypothetically make a little spaceship, to, spaceship that sits on the ground and like flip your pole, could you just be like <clears throat> gone? <laughs> and if you were, would you just well, be gone into whatever? Well, I was going to ask a similar question eventually about people on Earth in some sort of secret, like uh, space program way, utilizing this theory, these theories, and this energy for for some sort of anti gravity travel. I mean, it makes it seems to me yes. like somebody's traveling around in these ships, and and it's like they could be utilizing this type of theory. 
Yeah, well, the uh, gravitational field of the Earth is largely down to the fact that the nucleus inside each atom is two to 4,000 times heavier than the electrons that are orbiting around it. That means that in each atom, the nucleus is offset from the centre towards the um, centre of the Earth. It's, it's offset from the centre of the atom towards the centre of the Earth. Um, and because the atom itself is held rigidly in rocks or us or anything else on the Earth's surface, uh, the, each atom forms a tiny electric dipole. And that electric dipole influences the uh, shapes of the subatomic particles within the atom. This is all getting a bit complicated, but all I can say is that all you have to do is to change the orientation of the uh, electric field within the atom and you'll get a modification of gravity. And, and that could uh, be instant. Of course, well, gyros do it. So you spin you like a gyro around and the nuclei are being offset uh, considerably from the direction that gravity is trying to pull it. And that's why you get all those weird effects uh, because the gyroscope is more in touch with all the matter in the rest of the universe than it is with the Earth because, uh, as I said, if gravity is a repulsive force between uh, celestial bodies, then the question is, well, why do they go into orbit? You know, they should just avoid each other. Um, the answer is that it's the inward pressure from all the other repulsive objects in the universe which forces you towards the sun and the sun pushes you away. It's a different way of looking at gravity quite, in, it's quite entirely. Now, so, if you spin a gyro, yeah, if you spin a gyro, the uh, nucleus is offset from the centre of the atom, but this time it's towards the periphery of the gyro, which means that it's responding to the force from all the other matter in the universe in a different way to what the Earth is. And this is why uh, gyros behave in such odd ways. So does that mean that there's a hole in the middle of the Earth? Uh, who knows? It could be. <laughs> Certainly there are strange things going on, uh, and I'm very interested in any uh, information about um, deep seismic uh, readings, ones that pass close to the core, so-called core of the Earth. And just recently it was found, I think, that there were um, discontinuities which were unexpected. Now, it's the kind of thing I would expect if the interior of the Earth was um, unable, you know, um, well, it was hollow and it had a, an interior surface, if you like. Uh, this is the kind of thing that you can actually uh, consider as a possibility. Uh, the thing is that I'm sort of uh, out there on the boundaries as somebody, uh, a science journalist here in Australia called me the boundary writer of science. So I, I come up with the ideas. Uh, unfortunately, there's only a few mathematicians who are following and they're the ones who can come along and say, <clears throat> okay, here's the model, apply the maths and here's what the result is. And uh, this is the work for the future, of course. Uh, the mathematicians have to uh, be returned to the back room where they belong, and the natural philosophers and the people like me uh, should be throwing ideas at them uh, rather than them getting involved in the beauty of their equations, which is uh, <laughs> something we repeatedly have done through history. Um, they should just no. be fact-checking. <laughs> 
the young earth uh, uh, theory people, you know, the standard model says we got like electromagnetic field around earth that's decaying at a steady rate. And so mm. they extrapolate that, that it could only be so old because gravity would have been so dense, you know, yep. billions of years ago, it would have never survived. So is uh, how does that EU address that? Well, the Earth situation now is completely different to what it was, say, 12, 20,000 years ago. Uh, so there are some aspects of the Earth which are possibly still changing, still adjusting to the new environment. However, I should say that magnetism uh, of celestial bodies is not understood. Uh, astronomers are quite happy to... Um, push their models inside the sun and inside the earth where no one can tell whether they're right or wrong and then they uh, make up stories generally which don't work. Uh, one option uh, that was proposed by some geophysicists and which uh, should have been taken more seriously is that if you have a charged body, a surf you know, surface charge on the earth and the earth is spinning, it will generate a dipole magnetic field. But the geophysicists um, turned away from it because they were told, no, it would require a, a very high voltage on the surface of the Earth, and we don't find one. Well, if they turned to the plasma physicists, they would have told them that the uh, field that we do see on Earth, and it is there, it's about 100 volts per meter as you uh, go up from the Earth's surface, uh, that only measures the electric field between us and the ionosphere. And then beyond that, you've got another boundary, uh, also known as a plasma sheath or double layer, between the sun's environment, electrical environment, and the earth, and that's called the magnetosphere, only because the plasma sheath traps the magnetic field inside it. So um, that's one aspect. That's one possibility. The earth is charged and it is rotating, and that's creating some magnetic field. But it's the very... Uh, be, it's a behaviour of matter itself that generates magnetic fields and it's very strongly allied to gravity. The two are very similar in their origin. So even the rotating, gravitating body may be responsible for some of that uh, magnetic field. <laughs> there are also electric currents induced in the uh, near surface of the Earth called telluric currents and they change the Earth's magnetic field from day to day. You know, there are people who actually monitor that. So uh, in our current state of ignorance, uh, I wouldn't predict anything about the Earth's magnetic field. Okay. What, um, what, what happened 12 to 20,000 years ago? That was the time when the Earth was uh, adjusting to its new, newfound home because we, uh, we are, were not a part of the solar system until recently. Uh, prior to that, we were where you would find most life in the universe, and that is as a, a close-orbiting satellite of a brown dwarf star. Which was Saturn. Which was Saturn. Mm. I should say that brown dwarfs are not dwarfs. If you were to take uh, Saturn or Jupiter and uh, light up their magnetosphere, despite the fact that um, Jupiter is about five times more distant uh, or four times more distant at opposition, than the sun, it would appear as big as the sun in the sky. Now, uh, 
That means that if Jupiter and Saturn were taken away from the sun and placed out in interstellar space, they would light up as brown dwarfs, uh, minor stars. Now, the electric universe uh, paints a completely different picture of what a star is. Uh, certainly it's not a thermonuclear bomb going off slowly. Um, uh, the very fact, the idea that um, uh, massive bodies like the sun would have a core of the lightest element known, hydrogen, is a pretty silly model. You know, it was a kind of desperation model because when it was invented back in uh, the early 1900s, the, the geologists were throwing up this problem of the Earth seemed to, uh, from their measurements, be older and older than anyone thought. And then they said, but hang on a minute, how can the sun keep burning for that length of time? So when nuclear energy was discovered, of course, the geologists and everyone grasped it like drowning men um, as a solution to this problem of how do you keep the sun burning for the geological time spans necessary. Well, the Electric Universe says that this just assumes that all stars are isolated objects with no connection to anything else and that therefore they have to burn like a campfire in the sky. So the thermonuclear model is just a modern version of the old campfire in the sky uh, legend. The Electric Universe says, no, everything is connected uh, in more ways than are understood at present, and one of them is via these um, Birkeland filaments, as they're known to plasma physicists. And they're these plasma filaments that you see in a plasma ball, only in deep space, because of the huge volume of space, those filaments expand and they stop glowing so that you can't see them. But radio astronomers can detect them by their uh, uh, influence on radio signals. So they're out there, and uh, the sun is tangled up in one of them, and that's what um, helps it shine, because the uh, the stars act like a, um, a focus for an electric discharge. So and, would, would that be like the sun is like the electrical outlet? The sun is uh, like a circuit element, like a street light in the galaxy. You know, it's uh, it's there. It's um, it's shining, but it's uh, it's shining because it's connected to the uh, the current flowing in uh, along the spiral arms to the centre of the galaxy. And this is all uh, peer-reviewed material from the plasma cosmologists, and which includes Nobel Prize winners and so on. So it's it's not me just making up these stories. As I said, as a boundary writer of science, I looked for the people who were making the real, uh, you know, doing real science and not just making up stories. Yeah, yeah. So and it's more like the, the stars. Cosmologists. Sorry. So it's more like the stars are all the light bulbs in the house, and the center of the galaxy is like the breaker box in the basement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the center of the galaxy is an interesting place. Uh, electrically, um, you don't need black holes, by the way. They're a figment. Um, but, uh, yes, it's, I mean, your electric light, you don't have to keep uh, uh, feeding it with fuel. Uh, it just lights up because it's in part of a circuit and it's uh, accepting energy from a very distant source, um, from an intergalactic source, which then spirals in along the spiral arms. And you can tell that by the magnetic field wrapped around the arms that there's a current flowing along. And uh, it flows into the centre of the galaxy where it forms a what's known as a dense plasma focus. 
Uh, it's a th something that's known in the laboratories of plasma physicists. It's a very simple device where you have electric current uh, flowing in from one cylinder to a central smaller or lesser diameter cylinder. And you start the discharge, and the discharge, due to electromagnetic forces, moves down the two cylinders until it opens out into empty space. And at that point, it balloons out and then folds back in and forms a tiny little donut uh, of electromagnetic energy. Um, and it's it's twisted and just forms this little donut. And that's, of course, what we uh, has been discovered at the centres of uh, our galaxy and so on and other galaxies, is this uh, kind of donut. Now, the donut, when it gets to a certain uh, density, has particles beginning to collide, and the most dense part is down the central axis, and that's where the jets come from, because what happens is you get positive and negative charges, protons and electrons, uh, joined together to become neutrons, and then they can escape, and they escape along those jets and then dissociate back into a proton and an electron and form hydrogen, which is the, the stuff from which uh, new galaxies are born. Now, this is the sort of thing that Halton Arp discovered observationally and is explained by the plasma cosmologists. Uh, all of this is just standard electrical experimentation and engineering. So you could say that astrophysics is better handed over to the electrical engineers and plasma scientists than it is to the people who are uh, running it at present. So if, if yeah. that... Go ahead, Nikki. Uh, well, I was just going to bring up uh, the solar flares. We know those are massively destructive to our <laughs> electrical systems. Is that a, mm. uh, you know, is that that string you were talking about where creative uh, forces are, or uh, just exactly what is that? The uh, solar flares and so on uh, tend to be instances where uh, there's a plasma, one of these toroidal plasma donuts shapes that is formed around the sun. It's been imaged by the SOHO spacecraft, actually. Now, that is a, a storage ring, if you like. And when the energy in that gets to a certain level, uh, it will discharge to the sun itself. And uh, the solar flares are part of that discharge activity. And so are the sunspots. Now, sunspots are where an electrical discharge from this um, uh, toroid, plasma toroid, uh, punch through the photosphere and reveal the cooler planetary-style interior of the sun. Uh, because the sun itself, as a phenomenon, is merely a huge ball of lightning, um, and inside it is something like a giant Jupiter. So do you, Jupiter on fire? Does this does this um yeah. this theory of our solar system then? I guess that would put a kibosh on stuff like the Great Year of twenty six thousand years, or the fact that civilization would have been around before twelve to twenty thousand years ago. Then, because it would have been completely different. Yes. yes. So the like, uh, cycles and all that, like everything, sort of happened then more recently. Yeah. Yeah, timekeeping only began when uh, ancient man first began to see the sun, the present sun, uh, the one we had before being a brown dwarf, and we were orbiting within its photosphere, which is quite possible. Uh, 
easy to do. If um, Jupiter was to light up its magnetosphere, its inner moons would all be orbiting within that glowing um, sphere. So it would just be bright and all the time? It, yeah, bright all the time, no day or night. It wouldn't matter which way up you were or how you were spinning, you would get the same energy all over the body. And, of course, on the Earth we know that uh, uh, Carboniferous uh, uh, era forests, huge forests and that were in the Antarctic and the Arctic and that huge animals roamed at the time. This is because the electrical environment was so different that the Earth's gravity was only about a third of what it is now. So those huge birds the size of uh, small aircraft and so on dinosaurs had no difficulty. And the dinosaurs, they couldn't get off the ground in present-day gravity. Uh, so um, all of this is evidence for the fact that the Earth's environment has changed drastically uh, over over the uh, history of the Earth. And what about art? Like, what about us then, as a civilization, and is how fast we evolved? So right? Like, that's time? like that could be the missing link <laughs> as well. Like twelve twelve thousand years ago, yes. Gobekli Tepe was made after yes. this reconfiguration, Holy right? Fuck, and, and the sun, the the energy from the sun and whatever else it does to us accelerated our evolution into like a more of a sentient from species. From monkeys like, to people, we didn't not need monkeys, hair anymore. Not monkeys from from no, our like you know, Denisovian uh, yeah. from all those pre ancestors, right? Yeah, it's a bit like um, uh, Isaac Asimov's story, Nightfall, where uh, this planet had multiple suns, and there was only one uh, brief interval in thousands of years when all of the suns set and then nightfall came about and people went crazy because they saw the universe for the first time all the stars and the galaxies and stuff and it must have been like that for us uh when we were exposed from inside this um, glowing cocoon where life is uh, most likely to be found in the universe uh and we were suddenly exposed to the um more hostile environment outside <laughs> and we saw the universe for the first time it must have been quite a mind-bending and it, you can imagine that it would have changed uh changed us in ways that uh were profound oh hmm. is it possible that uh like, um, would there have been room for the Earth to somehow change size in that process? Like, is it, um, it just seems like those continents fit together so good. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's just empty space in the middle. Well, uh, the problem with uh, the expanding Earth theory is that uh, there is really no mechanism that can, that can do it, you know. Even if you were to heat the Earth uh, till it was incandescent, it would only expand a tiny amount, nothing like that required to shift the continents apart. And uh, as I said, the, the most powerful sculpting force in the universe for planetary surfaces is the cosmic thunderbolt. And that comes in, uh, in various sizes, of course depending on the body that uh, happens to be uh, shooting at you. <laughs> and uh, so I, I'm firmly of the opinion that the Earth's uh, surface is, has been sculpted possibly during its uh, birth uh, or its attempt to escape from uh, an electrical environment that was uh, quite hostile. 
this is the thing. We don't know. We can't tell how old the sun is or the planets. We don't know their histories. The best we can do is to look at what the ancients told us and try and identify the members of the family that we had before we entered the solar system. And uh, I've already traced similarities uh, between Venus uh, and Titan and Saturn, Titan being the biggest moon in the solar system and the moon of Saturn. And uh, I can understand, in fact, I was the only one on Earth who predicted that when that um, uh, Giotto lander uh, would pierce the clouds of Titan and see the surface, that they would see a surface like that on Mars or the Earth. In other words, it has suffered electrical scarring as well. And that was uh, that was proven correct. Um, and I also said that there wouldn't be oceans of methane to account for the methane that's being lost today because Titan isn't four and a half billion years old. It's uh, it's uh, its age is unknown, and it's only been in its present orbit for maybe less than twenty thousand years. What? Uh, so right now, if are there st- are there like those moons on Jupiter, it's not bright all the time, though not now, like that, because it's in the sun's heliosphere, it's all fucked with? Oh, that's right, yes, yes. Um, the response of a body like Jupiter or Saturn outside the sun's influence would be to uh, accept the energy that's coursing through the spiral arm that we are From the black hole, at the cent- from the not black hole at the center of the From galaxy. the not black hole, yeah. Yeah, from the intergalactic uh, uh, Birkeland currents. Uh, The evidence for that is growing too over the years. Uh, They found that uh, even galaxies tend to line up like Catherine wheels on a a wire. Um, It's simply because they are connected by a wire. Um, So... um, uh, Where were we going with that? Jupiter, the center of uh, Jupiter. Or no, Saturn. Jupiter lighting up. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, Jupiter lighting up. Yeah, it's almost a, a Space Odyssey 2010 uh, scenario. Uh, given uh, a different environment, electrical environment, the gas giants would all light up as brown dwarfs uh, to some degree. And that means that they would appear much larger, uh, but they would glow dimly, either in infrared or red light. Um and that was the the memory of the ancients, by the way, the uh, legends of uh, the purple dawn of creation, because that was their memory of what light was like. It was dim. It was aimed at the red end of the spectrum, although there was uh, violet and ultraviolet due to the electrical activity in the ionosphere. Uh, and all of this uh, just makes sense. Even it's been found somebody was looking at the size of the eye sockets on dinosaurs, and they said they're huge. In other words, they needed big eyes to collect the dim light and be able to uh, function in that kind of environment. Hmm. Nikki, um, Nikki you had a question about when, that, eh? Uh, yeah, uh, in the time when they uh, existed, and was there maybe vapor canopy, uh, something like that, that shows proof of the massive flooding we see around, you know, uh, mm. pr- pretty much a global flood at one time? Certainly, um, One of the reasons why I say that uh, being a satellite of a brown dwarf and uh, orbiting inside that uh, red uh, photosphere uh, is uh, the place for life is because uh, in the 
observations of brown dwarfs, it's been found that uh, carbon molecules, uh, water molecules, all the things that you need for life are found in the spectrum of those stars. So as you uh, suggested, and as it was reported, uh, water used to mist down out of the sky continually. It didn't rain, it just misted. However, when uh, Saturn encountered the sun electrically, uh, Saturn flared up. It became a comet, a giant comet. And uh, its only way of uh, achieving stability under this condition was to eject material. And it ejected a colossal amount. Uh, it, most of it became the planet Venus. Uh, and the ancients witnessed the birth of the planet Venus. It's funny, you know, when you think about the stories we're told about the solar system, and this information has been around since <laughs> prehistory. Isn't there but one we haven't recognised it because we wouldn't allow it. It, it was beyond our, our uh, imagination. Isn't there and, one that's uh, missing too? Wasn't there another one? Oh, the one Stitchin used to talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well... <laughs> what Sitchin has done is just to uh, take those stories and make up a uh, his own story uh, without any scientific uh, background. Uh, what Duardo Cardona did uh, was to um, thoroughly document everything he said, which means that you can check it out and you can either agree or disagree, but Sitchin just makes up a story, which is obviously very attractive, and it has, because it... Uh, it intersects with a lot of information which we don't, is not generally understood at present. Mm. It makes a good story. However, it makes a much better story when you understand what was really happening. Uh, this idea of Nibiru and so on is a kind of um, a way of uh, a rehash, if you like, of instabilities in the solar system. But you, since, uh, as I said, you can only go back 12 or 20,000 years before everything was different then uh, any talk of uh, Nibiru or some other planet coming in from uh, great distances over long periods of time uh, is uh, is wrong. There's a great tendency, actually, to try and find periodicities where there are none because it makes your science look uh, really, really good. Yeah, I was... Um, oh, sorry. I was uh, thinking more along the lines of he he was there was like an extra planet was in the mythology like Tiamat or something Nibiru. like that. No, not Nibiru. Yes. It was another inner solar system one that was destroyed in some cataclysm. Yeah, yes. Most of those uh, stories are built on uh, material that we've used as evidence, but we've interpreted it uh, more scientifically. Oh. And I'm quite I'm quite convinced that uh, you know. The work that's been done by the mytho historians in our group uh, can be supported scientifically. Um, if there were another brown dwarf or another large object to enter the sun's electrical environment, you would certainly know about it because it would light up as the, another mother of all comets uh, at great distances, uh, at least 200 uh, thereabouts times further away from uh, the sun than the earth is so um, there'll be plenty of warning if there is another object coming in and of course this is always a possibility given that there are so many of these dark objects uh floating around out there what would that look like if that 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 distance when it first lit up would it be like the equivalent of like what would you 
like just a really bright uh, star or it's cl- yes, too close uh, for it's that? what's called a yes yeah, what's called a nova outburst and these are observed uh throughout uh the galaxy and other uh, parts of uh, other galaxies uh nova outburst is where uh either a very faint star which was not noticed before suddenly uh increases many magnitudes in brightness or um, uh, a star that's already there uh, uh, changes its uh, position on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram suddenly. All of these are electrical outbursts. And uh, so, as I said, if another body came towards the sun and entered its electrical environment, the first indication would be a flare-up. So that would be plenty of uh, warning that uh, we're in for an interesting time. Because the sun itself would do weird stuff. The sun itself uh, probably would, well, it's difficult to say. It would depend on the difference between the two bodies. Uh, If it was another bright star, then all bets are off. (laughs) Uh, But if it was a body, another one like Jupiter or Saturn, then... I expect there would be effects on the sun, but they'd be more subtle. It's the incoming object that would suffer the most. What, um, shoot. Nikki had a question about the, speaking about the ancient myths and all that, didn't you, Nikki, about Bach saga? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Bach saga, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they, they speak of the creation of the earth is being admitted from the sun. And, and they also speak of a cocoon or womb that, mm. you know, it, it, it basically plasma that it spit it out in. And, and so that's the earth was protected kind of, uh, I, I forget the, all the terminology, but I didn't know if you're familiar with that or it sounds uh, a lot like what you talk about though. Yeah. One of the things that you find is that uh, the language that the ancients used has been misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. And when they spoke of the earth originally and the creation of the earth, they weren't talking about uh, the planet we're standing on. They were talking about the uh, phantasmagoria seen in the sky uh, because it was changing all the time. You know, material was being spat out and then it would go into orbit about the main body and then there'd be electric discharges which changed the look of the thing so that one minute it would be beautifully symmetrical and the next it would uh, look like uh, Medusa's hair streaming out and all this kind of thing. Uh, so the word earth was actually uh, originally uh, referring to what was seen in the sky. The same thing about you know the waters under the earth and the waters above the earth. That was the appearance of the plasma, which looked like uh, flowing liquid uh, times. And so um, uh, the this is it. <laughs> Most of those old stories have been misinterpreted simply because we have no longer got any idea what the heck those people were referring to because we have no experience of anything like it today. Hmm. Okay. Is it more likely that we were cruising around, rotating around Saturn, and we encountered this solar system, or is the sun the newcomer? Or... Oh, well, it, it's all the point of view, I suppose. Uh, we were quite happy, uh, it seems, in uh, Saturn's um, uh, cosmic womb. Um, the only thing is uh, about being uh, a satellite of a brown dwarf is that 
they don't have the ability to adjust their output. Uh, they don't have any feedback mechanism like uh, bright stars like the sun does. The photosphere actually acts, has a transistor action which uh, steadies the heat and light output even though the uh, electrical energy is changing. You can tell that because seen in x-rays, our sun is a variable star. Uh, but it's not variable in heat and light, luckily. Um, now, with uh, Saturn, with uh, brown dwarfs, they don't have a, a bright photosphere, so they're not able to control their discharge the same way. What happens is that that uh, envelope expands and contracts, and sometimes when it contracts, the electric field uh, becomes great enough that it starts stripping material like that, just as a comet does, starts stripping material off the central body. And that means that at various times you can have uh, matter, you know, soil, sand, uh, gas, uh, water, all that sort of stuff uh, dumped on you in in large quantities. And, of course, when you look at every body that's been examined close up in the solar system, including uh, asteroids and comets, they appear to be layered. And this uh, would explain that they were originally all parts of planets which were uh, in that kind of environment. They were built up by layering. When's the next layer coming? Were the rings left from that? The rings of Saturn? Is that the left from that? uh, That's right, yes. It's the leftover. And, of course, that's water ice, which tells you that's where we got all the water in our oceans. Uh, We got it from Saturn. Okay. So we've got a couple. Of That's a big puzzle, by the way. I should say that that is a huge puzzle, and in fact, the Juno mission that's uh, just uh, out there, at present orbiting uh, Jupiter, one of its main uh, aims is to try and find out uh, what Jupiter's made out of to try and understand where we got our water from. Well, the answer's already available. Uh, you look to Saturn, and we know its rings are icy. Uh, that's and also most of the moons you'll notice of the uh, outer planets are icy too. So um, even Io, which looks like a pizza, uh, was originally icy. It's just that the electric discharge is travelling all over its surface, uh, convert the oxygen in the water to sulphur. So it's um, it's been dusted with sulphur. What are, what are a couple? I got a couple big picture questions, like about about the scientific community and and your research. And then before we wrap it up here, I wanted to get just ask you a couple of those questions. Like, what's the what's the the biggest problem that they have with your with the, with the EU theory? Like, what's the what's the main thing that they say? Oh, well, it sounds good. I mean, we had this. We had a you know a couple scientists over talking about all kinds of cosmology and all that, and we I asked them about the electric universe theory, and and they something like you know, well, it's a, it, there's some really good information there, and there's great ideas, but it's lacking something, like or it's missing this big piece. What do they say? And then I guess the other <laughs> the other part of that is what what is your best evidence for EU? Like as a summary. Hmm. The second part's a, a good one. I haven't actually thought about putting down a, a dot point list. Um, and I'll probably think of some good ones after we finished. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot. In relation, in relation to the, uh, the first question, the problem is the way uh, we're taught these days, the education system fails scientists because um, it trains the left hemisphere of the brain uh, and as a, uh, a, a uh, well-known 
scholar and psychiatrist, psychologist, classical scholar in England has pointed out from his research recently, the left hemisphere is the survival hemisphere. It's the one that um, holds the facts you need to uh, survive or to uh, be successful in your career or it's the kind of roadmap for day-to-day survival. The right hemisphere, and he uh, gave the instance of a, a chicken, he said, The chicken uses the left hemisphere to uh, find seeds and what it needs to eat in amongst the dirt and the grass and so on. The right hemisphere, meanwhile, is the one that's got the big picture and it's making sure the chicken isn't somebody else's lunch. Uh, They were his words. Now, he said, this is a very interesting thing to consider in terms of humans. He said, why is it that brains are divided into left and right hemispheres? He said, uh, it's been found that the connection, the corpus callosum between them, is actually an inhibitory mechanism. And I recommend this uh, fellow's YouTube interviews. They're absolutely amazing. His name is Ian uh, McGillchrist. And uh, he... uh, points out that the problem with the way kids and that and students at university are taught is that you're given all of these facts which are then absorbed by the left hemisphere as being necessary for your career and survival and all this kind of thing. And uh, there's no challenging with alternatives so that you can go away and use the right hemisphere with the big picture and try and figure out, well, which one's the best. And I guarantee if you were to start doing that in schools, you would find that kids would be turned back on to science because it is a a real interesting challenge. You know, give kids the arguments for and against Einstein when his theory was first proposed and let them choose which they think is best. And I think you might find that a lot of these decisions that were made in the past were made on the basis of politics, um, show business um, and consensus which, as I said before, has got nothing to do with science. Uh, so that's the problem. So you've got people who consider themselves as experts in a subject, but they've been taught in this way so that they the first response to any uh, challenging idea is denial. Yeah. Uh, we all know about denial. And then anger. <laughs> we see a lot of it. Yeah, and anger. <laughs> so is your, is your worst... Is, Go ahead. This is exactly what happens. Yeah. Uh, I talk to somebody who I know who's an expert in a subject, and I can see uh, after I say some challenging thing that uh, he's not listening to me anymore. He's thinking up reasons why I'm wrong Yeah. rather than trying to assimilate that thought and go away and consider it. Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, uh, there's a psychologist here in Australia, uh, in South Australia, who has introduced a remedial mediation system in schools which tries to help people overcome bad habits. Now, one of the bad habits of teaching is teaching people facts which aren't facts. Uh, They're opinions or consensus. Um, And he said it's damn difficult. You have to keep presenting them with the uh, contrast between the way they're doing something now and an alternative You'd keep doing it until finally the person starts to think about the way they are thinking and then you have the breakthrough, but it's hard work. So this is the problem you've got, I've got to deal with. 
I was going to. It's much easier for me to to talk to people like you who are open to these ideas. You haven't been trained to the point where uh, the right hemisphere has been shut down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about if your if your work is in schools at all because I did notice a teacher or at least one teacher in your forums discussing it, and it seemed like uh, yes, the, yeah. yes, he he. Uh, it's a bit a bit of a problem though because of the uh, strict curricula and that yeah. that they uh, put out now. If you want to do the electric universe, it has to be an extracurricular yeah, yeah. subject yeah. or something that the kids just come along to voluntarily. And uh, he attempted that, but uh, he there's always those who will try and pull the rug from under. Um, but he said uh, his response from the children. Uh, was when presented with the Big Bang Theory and then the Electric Universe Theory, the kids said about the Big Bang Theory, you know, and smart people think that, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in other words, they can see that it didn't make, it make any sense. Um, but the problem is the education system is such that you're plied with facts, you memorise them, you as long as you tick the right box in the exam, then uh, you're an expert. Um and that is, and you're rewarded, but that is not the way to um, develop scientists. So you must have seen a bit of a shift, though, in the last, say, five or ten years. You've got conferences now every year, probably, with this thing since 2012. And, and uh, yes. you know, with, with the Internet and with websites like yourselves and, and a bunch of other popular websites that are that are talking about science and spirituality and where they kind of meet, um, you seeing a shift at all? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. The very fact that we're having annual conferences and we're uh, live streaming on the Internet, those conferences, and that we have uh, funding for an experiment to test the electrical model of stars, uh, all of these things show that um, there are people, uh, scientists, uh, who are looking for better answers and are prepared to... Uh, stick their neck out <laughs> and join us or to be in the background assisting us. Um, and this is the way it works, I think. You find those who are dissatisfied with uh, the things they've been taught and they actually are ripe or open to an alternative idea. And um, and this is uh, this is what's happening. Is, uh, is life more or less likely in an electric universe? Oh, life is an essential part. There's no point to it otherwise. You mean intelligent life, Darren? Like ETs or just life in general? Well, I'm, consciousness. Part yeah, two, consciousness I guess, would everything. be would be if it if it alludes to any sort of possibility for how it's created. Uh, yeah, when it comes down to creation, the big mysteries still exist, and it's good to be able to say. This is a real mystery and not one that uh, comes out of the fact that we've got the wrong model in the first place. And the mysteries of uh, how matter is created uh, still exist because, as I said, if you give structure within structure, how far down do these structures go? And what ultimately is at the bottom? Or is there a bottom? So these are the, this is where the natural philosophers uh, come in and that's where they should be working today, but they've all been tossed out. Would, uh, uh, does the universe behave kind of the way we would expect if it was on a hard drive or if it was <laughs> digital? Or... Uh, no, we've got to be very careful with our mechanical uh, models because they get us into all sorts of trouble. 
the brain is not uh, like a computer. You know, the human body is not a, a biochemistry uh, set. Uh, there is more to life than meets the eye, and the electric universe provides uh, some ideas about what that those things might be. In fact, uh, my work coincides quite strongly with the work of Rupert Sheldrake, the Oxford biologist, who has proposed things like uh, the morphic field uh, in embryogenesis and and uh, the fact that consciousness exists outside uh, mm-hmm. that uh, grey porridge in our head. Um, and all of these ideas uh, resonate with the electric universe because that's the heart of the electric universe is the instantaneous electric force and resonance between similar structures, electrical structures. And when you think about it, to control the trillions of biochemical reactions that are taking place in a living creature at any instant, if you had to rely on nerve signals and hormones in the blood and all this kind of stuff, it just wouldn't work. It would be incoherent. Uh, and that's what the universe, uh, the electric universe is about, is coherence, um, uh, resonance, and it, holding information and transferring information. It's like we are the self-referential part of the universe. We witness it, the universe learns through us, and what we learn is out there, it's available. It can be used anywhere in the galaxy. Yeah, we're all connected. Are there any nations that are yes. uh, rogue nations or that are anywhere near closer, like like Russia or China or any of these people close to that model, or are they just following in our footsteps? <laughs> I don't know. Um, based on the things that I see, uh, there, there's a lot of people tinkering around at the edges, but none of them have gone as far as the electric universe. I think the, the electric universe is uh, so far out there that uh, it's going to take some catching up. Hmm. This experiment, when is this happening? This it's uh, it's in phase two. Phase one was successful and looks uh, very promising. Phase two is a much bigger installation and uh, higher energies, and that uh, is uh, being commi- well, commissioned uh, this year. Uh, I saw the first firings um, in June. What uh, and. What are the implications? Like, is how far are you guys from having an experiment that can, like, how far are we from really rocking the boat? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this one will rock the boat. That's my uh, opinion. Yeah. And that could uh, be This is day. the thing. This is the best way of uh, being heard is actually to show uh, the person who says it's impossible, uh, showing it actually working. <laughs> yeah. Nikki, is is there any problem that you guys could like create a accidentally create another sun and <laughs> no no okay uh, I think I think we know what we're doing which is more than can be said for the initial uh, nuclear experiments <laughs> <laughs> yeah Nikki do you have any last questions uh, quick questions before we go well it's just uh, fascinated about the part there of maybe consciousness traveling you know using an electrical grid or some type and maybe we surf it at times but you know some people are better at it than others i i think i've touched that area in a time or two you know but i don't really know how to access it if if you understand that yeah it does uh the eu does impinge on uh esp experiments and so on 
and it shows why you cannot uh, use a Faraday shield to prevent ESP because it's the same kind of signaling that planets use to uh, orbit stars. Uh, it's instantaneous and it's not shieldable. And when you think about it, that's how the universe has to work. It's no good if you can shield in information from a part of the universe. It, uh, it doesn't make any sense. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's uh, very exciting. There's almost no subject that you can't ask questions and get some sort of response uh, from the electric universe model. Yeah, everything that's, is that's electric. Great. Yeah. So mm. what, what do you got? So uh, gravitational waves are actually like electrical surges. No, there is, they're not gravitational waves. Um, uh, those huge vacuum uh, chambers, you know, the biggest vacuum chambers on Earth, those arms of the so-called gravity wave telescopes, uh, the thing they don't uh, recognise is that they're full of neutrinos. You can't keep neutrinos out, and that's the ether. So all you need is a disturbance in the ether to pass through, uh, pass by those two arms, and you'll get a disturbance. Uh, which will be misinterpreted. Certainly, uh, black holes don't exist, so it's not nothing to do with the coalescing of two black holes. Uh, the problem is that all of these experiments are down in the noise, and that is what uh, uh, Irving Langmuir pronounced as pathological science, where you're scrabbling around in the noise looking for uh, data to, um, to fit match the your paradigm. model. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in other words, the theory tells you what's right rather than the experiment. I think the best part of that was when they, I think I even found somewhere where I could listen to the sound of the two black holes colliding. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is virtual reality. Yeah. Um, now, Tesla, he believed in the ether, or he had tapped into it, or he, that's why he was so far ahead of his time. Is yeah. that right? Or Yes, and he said the black uh, Big Bang was rubbish. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, he, I, I class rather like Velikovsky as one of these intuitive geniuses um, who was able to see more clearly than anyone around them uh, without necessarily being able to uh, fill in all the, you know, the blank spaces. But certainly they, they seem to uh, intuitively understand, uh, in Velikovsky's case, what mankind was trying to tell us, in Tesla's case, uh, what electricity is and how it works. Wow. So what do you got coming up, um, Wall, for conferences and stuff like that? Do you, I mean, I'm going to put all, all of these links to the stuff we talked about in the show notes for the episode. And, and we, I don't want to, you know, keep you here too much longer. You've already stayed longer than we, we asked you to. We really appreciate it. <laughs> we don't want to let you go, but, uh, but we should get a chance to just hear what you, uh, what you guys have coming up besides that experiment there in, in the future. If there's conferences or stuff you want people to know about. Uh, our conference for next year uh, is already scheduled for August uh, in Phoenix. And um, all of the information about upcoming events can be found on the homepage of thunderbolts.info. Uh, I have a two-day um, show to put on in South Australia in Adelaide uh, next month uh, on the 14th, I think it is, of uh, no, not next month. October? In October, in October rather, uh, on the 14th and 15th, I think it is, of October. Uh, I'll be in Toronto at, um, looking at the experiment uh, uh, just before that. But I don't have any public appearances 
But once again, I do space news regularly on the Thunderbolts.info website, and that is the best place for people who want to get involved or learn more. Experiments in Toronto? Yes. Can we, can how, we how, fitting, how fitting it's the center of the universe. In the Unfortunately, uh, not, no, not, not yet because of uh, the, um, the nature of the experiment and so on. Uh, until we have uh, hard data, uh, it's not a good idea to. Um, um, but I, when I say that, all you have to do is have a look on thunderbolts.info and look for the Sapphire experiment. That's S A F I R E. Oh, yeah, I saw and that, yeah. uh, there are some YouTube videos uh, there which show you the kinds of things that are happening. Um, but as for uh, seeing the setup and so on, uh, I don't think that's possible at this stage. Um, what what was the name of that? Uh that thing that showed Earth as being the center of the universe. Geocentrism? Yeah, but that scan. Oh, the cosmic microwave background. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's an assumption that it's background. When you're surrounded by those plasma filaments, all radiating uh, energy, electromagnetic energy, then to say that uh, the CMB is uh, background radiation is purely an assumption. Uh, it's more likely that it's just the local uh, environment that uh, we're picking up. Huh. So it's basically meaningless. It just makes too much sense. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to yeah. argue that. The big, the big bang never happened. It's, it's nonsense. Uh, it doesn't even make any sense in physics. Uh, you, it's the ultimate free lunch. <laughs> and, uh, and you just can't do that and call it science. Uh, so whatever that radiation is has nothing to do with the beginning of the universe. Even the idea that we could uh, make pronouncements about it when uh, you know we've only got to this point in our science in the last sort of microsecond of our existence is uh, shows uh, some degree of uh, insanity on the part of, <laughs> of the people involved. <clears throat> No doubt. And you must take evolution along with it as, as it's a total package. So, yeah, well, there's no yeah, varying from it. Yeah, Darwin never explained uh, the changes uh, between animals. But uh, when you realize that uh, we uh, respond to our environment at the genetic level, this is known as epigenetics, when that environment changes drastically, the epigenetics uh, can change us drastically too. So, uh, the wipeouts in the past that are in the geological record were followed by a outburst of new animals that hadn't been seen before. And the reason is that the universe knows how to build creatures to fill the niches available. The information is out there and life uh, works that way. It doesn't have to be created from uh, scratch. So would it be uh, like instant time. or would it be like a gen mut generational mutation? I don't know the details, but uh, it has to be operate almost, uh, you know, the offspring have to be able to survive in the new environment, if you like. Uh, you it gives you some idea that it's, it's, it's rapid, it's sudden. Mm. Huh. Oh, that's fascinating. And we're the best they could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to remember, we've been traumatized terribly 
and uh, we all need to uh, lie back on the couch and uh, and uh, spill our guts. <laughs> Do you think life would have been better around Saturn? Like, were we intelligent well, and everything then? It was did... remembered. It was remembered by all age. peoples as the golden age. Yes, uh, because uh, you didn't have to um, harvest or you know you didn't have to work. Let's put it that way. Uh, everything grew like crazy because red light is uh, the fundamental requirement for photosynthesis. And you had uh, water misting down. That's why a lot of the ferns and that, which are plants that like uh, misted uh, environment rather than heavy rain. And uh, apparently whatever you needed to eat was just available. Yeah, that's the beginning of Genesis, right? Garden of Eden. It was all there. <laughs> Yeah, the Genesis story is not about the creation of the universe. It's about the creation of the uh, environment we now find ourselves in from mm -hmm. something quite different. Huh. And do you know what's the crazy part is? Is 6,000 years they actually got it closer probably than the scientists. Have <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny way of putting it, yes. <laughs> right on, Wal. Well, we don't want to keep you on here too long. You've been great just to stick around with us here and chat. It's good fun. Yeah, thanks for coming on, and, and we'll put everything in the show notes there and, and send you a copy. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, keep up that awesome website for yeah. everybody. It is it is full of great information, lots of science, lots of scientists participating, and I think you guys are really heading, heading for some good stuff. Yes, I think so. Hey, maybe you can come back after the experiment and, yeah, yeah. and let us know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, I'll be happy to do that if it yeah. turns out the way I expect. Absolutely, we're, we're Canadian, so yeah, we'll get the word yeah. out there. Yeah, we're in Calgary, so. Actually, we do have oh, a I lot see. of listeners in Australia, so hopefully they'll head out and check out your thing in October. Yeah, yes, in Adelaide, yeah. It's that uh, group uh, called Astro SA, that's for South Australia. Uh, so if they look up Astro SA on um, the web, they'll find them. Okay. I think they're uh, just about to put up the announcement. Nice. Right on. All right. Good luck with the experiment. Uh, don't blow up Toronto. It's okay if you blow up Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> just try and keep it localized. <laughs> I'll okay. do that. Thanks a lot, Will. Well, take care. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Ah, that was our episode with... Wolf Thornhill. That was a good one. That was great. I was hoping it was going to tie into the growing earth theory again. Yeah, I could hear you. I could see you really pushing for that. Yeah, just, hey, maybe. But hey, maybe that's one they got wrong. Probably not. It seems pretty solid. You still there, Nikki? Yes. Uh, oh, you yeah, did pull it off. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking, uh, uh, along with Darren, they, they do fit together very well. If you, I know. If you I, look at a map, you know. Well, I was going to ask him about pair production. Like, maybe that's like, you know how he just talked he about it as well? It. About the, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't want to go back to the growing earth again, no. I don't think. No, but I mean, talking about how matter's created, though, right? Oh, it's got to be created somehow. Yeah. It just, it just makes more sense to me. Everything's electric, right? Really, everything has a charge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, when I was looking at the Thunderbolts website there, you know, he talked about, he compared our solar system to the, the way electrons, protons rotate around a nucleus. So, 
you know, you almost thought of the expanding universe and the infinite smaller side too, you know, the, the old animal house uh, professor thing that he talked about, you know, we got an entire universe inside of us too that keeps going the other way. So that was pretty crazy. Yeah, that was good. That was a fun one. That was a gooder. Long one. Yeah, what thanks for that. I could have went another hour. Yeah, I know you didn't want to let him go there. I felt bad for the guy. It's <laughs> the middle of the day over there. <laughs> I, I think he was just getting warmed up, though. He 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 can talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, a, lot of, a lot of information. Hopefully the experiment goes well. Yeah. I'd like to see physics turned on its head in my lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, it would be good, eh? If if the whole paradigm shifted, if it just really just it's fell apart. Motherfucker. Like, yeah. I want to see them admit they were wrong. No, I don't know what that uh, uh, you, you won't live that long. <laughs> no, probably not. Right on. Well, thanks for coming on, Wall. I thought you still had him here for a sec. No. no. <laughs> yeah, check out grammarica.ca slash support for all the different ways you can help out the show. Sign up for a monthly. Do a one-time donation, whatever, whatever suits your boots. Sign up for the newsletter, Uh Oh, get your swag, slash swag Yeah, definitely, definitely donate. I'm a, I'm a living example of uh, how it can pay off. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's how the karma works. And, and, and I get so, yeah, I get so much more out of it. Like just, just. Tonight, you know, uh, all the information uh, take me years to digest all that. <laughs> and of course, spam ground. Ram. Thanks for listening, guys, and we will see you next week.
Synchronicity, brain reads it out, then Daramite give it to me. Hey, don't you please read it low? Yeah, yeah. Ow. 